Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday. We did it. We made it, mom. 25 years later, your daughter is still sober. (sighs) What a gift. So this is it. The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. It's my book. It's my heart. It's my soul. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you don't judge me if there were mistakes. It's 11.58 p.m. on August 10th. In two minutes, it will be my 25th sober anniversary. I want to thank everyone, but like, I'm not reading the acknowledgments, okay? They're in the real book. So I gave you everything else, though. And I really, really want to thank you for listening. We, uh, we just need to be kind to each other, everybody. We never know what somebody else is going through. Thank you. I love you. And here's my book. So I just realized that I really, really need to thank Anchor. Like Anchor FM. This isn't even like a sponsored paid commercial. But Anchor I just recorded my entire book on your free platform that goes out to iTunes and like every platform where you can listen to um, a podcast. It's incredible. So if you want to start a podcast, like go to anchor.fm. And I swear, like I'm not getting paid for this. This one right here. There is a sponsored ad between 12 and 13. And I'm up to like $7 in my account right now. So don't be jelly. And enjoy the book. Thanks, Anchor. And thanks, Gary Vaynerchuk, for actually telling me about Anchor on the podcast that I listen to every day. You are amazing. And Whitney is more amazing because she introduced me to you. Okay, bye. Enjoy the book. Chapter one, from innocence to rehab. It is with great intention that I do my part in attempting to remove the stigma from what an alcoholic, drug addict, and former depression sufferer might look like in your mind. I feel a responsibility to enlighten anyone who might still believe that the crippling disease of alcoholism is only for people who were abused, poor, from broken families, or had alcoholic parents. Depression also affects the privileged as much as the underserved communities. So to those of you that already know this, bravo, you are certainly not the majority. I grew up in East Rockaway, New York, with very loving, non-alcoholic, Irish immigrant parents, yes, non-alcoholic and Irish. When anyone asks today where I grew up, I typically say Limbrook or Long Beach because everyone thinks East Rockaway is Queens. It is often confused with Far Rockaway, and that is where we bought our weed as teenagers, so I just want to make sure that there's no confusion right off the bat. I wouldn't want anyone thinking I grew up in a neighborhood best known for drugs. (laughs) The irony in that last statement is beyond anything I could ever impose on you in the second paragraph of this book. You will have a greater appreciation when you get to chapter two. I mentioned stigma already, so in retrospect, it enters into our psyche from a very young age. Truth is, we were too ignorant to know that pot was actually available in every town in Long Island. Our own prejudice ignorance was that we could only purchase it in a faraway land like Queens. Certainly, the Catholic and Jewish Caucasian families surrounding our neighborhood knew nothing about where to cop weed. Okay. 
Mom and dad have been together since they were teenagers and still happily married after 50 years. Like, they're in the next room. I'm in a hotel room, by the way, in Clearwater Beach, downtown Clearwater Beach. Mom's birthday is Sunday, okay? It is Friday, and it is August 9th. Her birthday is the 11th, and they're in the they're two rooms down, and uh, I don't know, happily married. I'm kidding, guys. They are super happy. They're besties. Okay, carry on. So they immigrated to this country from Ireland in their late teens, like so many, in search of the American dream. I can honestly say I don't remember them ever fighting growing up, and I didn't know anyone in our community or family that was divorced. Okay? I didn't know anybody that was divorced. Mom would literally hire a babysitter if she needed to argue with Dad. She didn't want to expose us to their minuscule adult adversities, They never yelled in front of us and put a lot of love and care into raising their children. We're Irish, which loosely translates to a very large family. Mom is the only girl out of 13. Yes, you heard that correctly. Please let that sink in for a minute. She was the only girl with 12 brothers growing up in Dublin. Dad also comes from a family, a large family, a large Irish family of eight, five boys and three girls. Can you even imagine our extended family? So I'm in the, I'm the middle child between two brothers. Paul is three years older and Sean is 10 years younger. Surprise. (laughs) They still live in the community where we were raised. We all went to private school growing up and yes, we walked uphill in the snow. Mom and dad both worked in a hospital throughout their career I actually remember after they had Sean, my younger brother, my mother put herself back through school at NYU to become an echo tech, which is a cardiac sonographer. She did that at night. They both worked very hard and they always put their children first. This I know for sure. I was an honor student in St. Raymond's Elementary School and involved in sports always. To this day, I can hear mom and dad saying, She could have been an Olympic swimmer, but she listened to her friends say her shoulders were getting big. I can also hear them saying right now that they don't talk like that. So this is true. Maybe not the Olympic swimmer part, but definitely the beginning of me becoming more aware of my physical appearance. I excelled in basketball, softball, volleyball, and track. I woke up singing every day. It annoyed my brothers for sure, but my zest for life was apparent. I loved writing, and Dad would let me write poems on the walls in our basement. Yeah, basement. They don't have those in Florida. It's where I live now. So then the sixth grade happened. Mm -mm -mm. I started hanging out with the most popular girl in our grade, and I went on to my first date with what everybody considered the best-looking boy in our class. I was quite the nerd before then, but my new bestie thought I was funny. And that was enough to enter the popular crowd. It all happened pretty fast. The girls I used to hang with took a back seat, and everything I loved started to become secondary to popularity. I smoked my first cigarette in sixth grade. That eventually grew into a pack of Marlboro a day. Sports became a nuisance in my newfound life of being cool. And before you knew it, I was sipping Budweiser nips on the weekends in a parking lot. I was oddly attracted to this rebellion, and I quit all sports. It was a completely unfamiliar life, but I was hooked pretty quick to this new lifestyle. 
I never knew existed. When it was time to enter high school, I was devastated to be pulled away from my friends. I was now attending another private school, this one run by brothers. I felt like a prison sentence, seriously, since all my friends from grammar school were heading to public school. I was also pretty chubby, and I had terrible acne as a teenager. Kids said pretty mean things, as you can imagine, but I drank most of that away on the weekends. This was to become my coping mechanism. Alcohol made me funnier, prettier, skinnier, and way more rebellious. It actually made me forget that I was going through an incredibly difficult adolescence. That young girl that woke up happy and singing was gone. I never thought she would return, and uh, either did my family. Lying was my new normal. I was punished all the time, and I worried my parents sick most weekends. They were pretty strict with me, and for good reason. Since I loved to write, I got especially good at writing letters to my parents, apologizing for whatever I did to land a punishment. There was one night that I drank an entire bottle of Southern Comfort and passed out in a pile of leaves. Dad picked me up in his new Malibu Classic, and I puked all over the car. They had to call poison control that night because I didn't know who they were. I certainly didn't know who I was. I was completely out of it. This night signified my first blackout, and, um, and there were many to come. I'm also like, if I trip up on a word, like, I'm a human, okay? I'm not going back. I'm recording this. It's free, okay? So there was no well-crafted apology letter good enough to get me out of that punishment. I mean, that Southern Comfort night was bad. When I turned 18, my family planned an intervention. I don't remember much because I was drunk, but I do remember my parents and my Uncle Martin were in attendance. My friend Dario and I arrived wasted to a family intervention. (laughs) That seems appropriate now, but I'm sure my family thought what they were saying registered. It did not. I packed enough for 21 days and we headed to Seafield Pines Rehab in the morning. Dario is no longer with us. He was my prom date. This was to become a familiar scenario within this life of addiction and alcoholism. My parents drove me to this rehab for adolescence in New Hampshire that next morning. I had actually the time of my life. It was a beautiful resort-like campus for screwed up teenagers and young adults. We climbed Mount Monadnock and I got into two rehab romances. By the way, it took me forever to say Mount Monadnock, but now I'm like a champ. I was having a blast sober for the first time. I was unfortunately kicked out, but, you know, whatever. I was, uh, I was kicked out for smoking weed, but I didn't smoke weed. To this day, I'm mad about that. I was smoking a cigarette. I think they just wanted me gone because I was kind of a lot of trouble. So I'm pretty sure they just want to get rid of me. I got a ride from the security guard to the train or the bus. I don't remember and followed one of those rehab romances home. Only problem was, he never invited me. My pattern was to become that I followed some guy. I'm pretty positive nobody stayed sober after spending those 21 days at the rehab, but it sure was a breath of fresh air air to meet some similar peers, and the seed was now planted. It was just planted, okay? Just planted. I did not think I was an alcoholic because I was only 18 years old. I just liked to party. I was 19 years old when the court mandated me to my second rehab. My parents were regularly attending a recovery program for alcoholics, so they did not 
bail me out of jail. <laughs> I spent the night at Nassau County Jail. Called my parents, but they wouldn't budge. I really hated that program they were attending. Although they were practicing tough love, they did secure a great attorney, and I promised on a Bible in court that I would go to a 12-step program every day after I completed rehab number two. I didn't know at the time that I was also mandated to a halfway house in Poughkeepsie, New York. Now, they called it Poughkeepsie, New York. That's how everybody referred to it. I remember it like it was yesterday. So it was smart that they didn't tell me. Otherwise, I might, I might have, like, run away. I wish I could tell you what happened between the first rehab and the second, but I was a blackout drinker. And truth is, I don't remember much. I do know that I ran up a bar tab at a hotel with a bunch of blacktop construction workers, and uh, I bailed in a blackout. I was using a friend's identification that was 21, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, but her brother was a cop, so there's that. More pain inflicted on innocent bystanders. It was to become a pattern over the next few years, and man, do I feel bad about that. Maybe I should try again to track her down. I spent... 30 days in Rhinebeck Lodge in upstate New York. Another day camp. I love this one too, except this time I shared a room with someone who was already sober. She came to rehab because she was afraid she was going to relapse. I thought that was crazy. But I was grateful to share a room with her because she was super funny. I ultimately ended up hurting her in the end over some guy. Remember the patterns, everybody. I wish I could remember so I could tell you the story, but it's gone from my memory. She was older than me and shared some of her deepest and darkest secrets. We were bonded by our sickness. I hurt a lot of people I loved, and I love. I'll revisit that more later on. Silly to mention now when there are a slew of people I hurt along the way. So I was then mandated to a halfway house for three months after completing my time in rehab. That's what it felt like. It felt like jail time. In my sick and twisted brain, I did not have the time to be there for three months. I was planning my escape from the moment I arrived. This place was called Bulger House, and it scared the shit out of me. There were people there who were homeless, addicted to crack, strung out on heroin, and I remember one woman specifically had AIDS. They wanted me to clean the floors. Uh, what? Yeah, clean the floors. Endure responsibilities and then get a job. The nerve. I kept telling the counselor that was on site. This makes me laugh every time. I always share this when I'm speaking at my recovery program. So I I keep meeting with the counselor. And every time she starts telling me I'm like the others, I tell her that I'm from a residential area. I don't even know what that means. Like, why was I even telling her that? So, yeah, I'm from a residential area, baby. I'm not like these people. She told me if I left, I would continue to drink and get high, but I emphatically disagreed. Lucky for me, mom and dad had stopped going to that family recovery program and picked me up when I called crying about my newfound depression. Now, that is serious. I did become depressed, but, you know, pretty manipulative, us alcoholics and drug addicts. So enabling is just part of the disease. They certainly couldn't predict what would happen next. So there's this business and life parallel, and I'm going to add this at the end of every chapter. So I hope, you know, I mean, it's 
it's certainly been really, really rewarding to me to reflect on this, reading the chapter, and then thinking, like, what business life parallel comes out of that? Well, first of all, pretending to be something you're not in business will ultimately catch up to you. I caught myself running with a fancy crowd that afforded, like, it afforded me certainly some third-party credibility after my third year in business. It felt inauthentic, and I began witnessing really toxic behaviors that reminded me of my life in addiction. It also reminded me of when I was a kid, and all of a sudden I, you know, I was very happy with the friends I was with, but these popular kids like really pulled me in, and, um, and I, I recognize that. I recognize that now, um, and it's really this amazing parallel for me anyway. I hope for you too. So I began witnessing these toxic behaviors you know, in business that reminded me of my life and addiction. And I hit bottom with that in my last job too, prior to opening my business, but I denied it because of financial luxuries that it afforded me. If not for upbringing that I had with my family and this life I've been blessed to lead in recovery, I could have gone down another wrong path, this time in business. One of the thousands of things that I've learned in recovery is surrounding yourself with good people is vital in life and in business. So when you cheat anything or anyone in life, it will for sure mirror that in business. So my business tip is to be wary of colleagues who have a shady personal life. It will ultimately appear in their business too. Your self-respect and reputation is never, ever worth financial gains. Chapter two, I smoked crack. As fast as chapter one switched to chapter two, my disease was progressing at the same rapid pace. Ironically, I would turn into those people I thought were so different from me in that halfway house. I don't remember much, but I do know I went home with my parents in Long Island. I vaguely recall going to a 12-step meeting, but have been since reminded that I tried to celebrate a year sober when I was high. I love hearing that. Well, that's what I was told. And there's many things I've been told that I just don't remember at all. It makes me sad to know that there's so much time in my life that I don't recall because of the blackouts. I believe I spent much of the next few years in a constant state of oblivion. I will put some of the pieces I remember together for you now, but it's mostly fragmented, so please bear with me. I do know that those 12-step meetings drift in and out of my mind as I try to put this puzzle together for you now. I must have shown up at a few meetings drunk and high because the old-timers really like to remind me of how messed up I was when I visit New York today. Never feels good, but I know their intentions behind it are meant to cause... They're not meant to cause me pain. They're certainly not. Just a nudge so I never forget where I came from. I was 19, so I think mom and dad were encouraging me to go back to college. I'd taken some classes at Nassau Community College in the midst of this blur, and my friend would drive me to school. She was a childhood friend that couldn't understand what happened to me. Nobody knew what was going on, especially me. But this was about the same time when the deep depression began. At the time, I just thought I was losing my mind. I didn't necessarily know it was depression. I barely remember our conversations in the car, but I know I was trying to insert answers to questions when asked. That was the extent of my communication, answering questions. 
Depression just left me unable to concentrate or explain what was happening inside of my mind. It was super scary. Uh, I'll never forget it. And it, it really just makes me pause just speaking about it right now. So while I was at Nassau Community College, I was taking this psychology course, and I do remember that very well. There was a big blue textbook that I took home and obsessively reviewed the symptoms of every psychological disease listed. Oof. I, I, I remember, I'm like envisioning my room, and I used to hide this book in my closet. So, because I had all these highlighted notes in it, you know, picking out what I thought I had. All right, so there was finally a description in it, and it matched exactly what I had concluded in my mind. I concluded in my mind that I had AIDS. So here are the symptoms listed on Google now that were in that textbook, because I don't know where that textbook is. So I got this from Google. Thank God for Google. All right, I highlighted the ones that I had. So obviously you can't see that because you're listening to me, but I will tell you after I list them which ones were highlighted. So the first one was thrush. The second one was sore throat. Those two highlighted. I'm just going to list all the ones that are highlighted. Feeling really tired, dizzy and lighthearted, lightheaded, sorry, headaches, bruising more easily than normal, purplish growths on my skin or inside your mouth, not being able to move and losing strength in your muscles. Okay, so there were other symptoms of one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, like 12 other symptoms listed, but out of those, I was just convinced that's it, I have to have AIDS. So in black and white, I saw my future, and that's the day I began plotting my first suicide attempt. So out of those symptoms, you know, it was really enough for me to be convinced that I had it. This, the one that really put me over the edge was the purplish growths on my skin. That scared the shit out of me. Here's what I knew all along and what I didn't know. All right, what did I say? Here's what I knew along with what I didn't know. I'm, you know, you gotta love rereading what you wrote while you're like on a podcast that people might listen to. <laughs> it's really, I'm really lucky that I don't really care what anybody thinks. Here we go. Um, I would get occasional ball. Uh, now I'm gonna have to edit that, right? No, I'm not, I'm just gonna leave it in there. I was going to say uh, balls, but I don't have balls. (laughs) This is good. To be able to laugh out of such a horrible time in my life, I hope you are enjoying this moment with me. So I would get occasional boils, B-O-I-L-S, as a result of shaving. I've always had sensitive skin. And to this day, I have to change my razor so frequently because I will still get them intermittently. I can't help but share with you that my husband literally hates the word boil, And I'm sure he's cringing as he listens to this right now. (laughs) Because he already read the book and he cringed and he laughed because I wrote this. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, And one day I'm going to be smart enough to avoid this altogether and just get laser hair removal. But I'm not there yet. I'm not that smart. Anyway, if you scratch a boil, it spreads. And I scratched and they spread. I was totally convinced I had like... I had AIDS for sure when that happened. I had purplish growths on my skin and I believed without a doubt I was going to die. So along with alcoholism and drug addiction comes promiscuity with unprotected sex. So I was a dead woman walking. During the 80s, this disease was rampant. Everybody was terrified. It was certainly not a treatable disease like it is today. I believe I had it and the shame and panic were simply unbearable. 
I remember thinking, I have to kill myself. I don't want to die like that. And I certainly couldn't tell anyone. So suicide was the only answer. Here comes another vague memory. I went driving around with two good friends at the time. Sidebar kids. We drove around before cell phones were invented. We were getting high. We were smoking pot. And they kept asking me, what happened to you? What is wrong with you? They had known me for years and didn't understand what was going on with me. I was just silent. I couldn't communicate with them. I certainly couldn't answer their question. I I didn't know what was going on. So what was I going to say? I didn't know I was suffering from depression. I thought I lost my mind. I also wasn't going to tell them that I thought I had AIDS. They dropped me off, and that was the night I first attempted suicide. I couldn't stand the questions, and I knew it was going to continue. I went from a social, happy, smart, chatty athlete to a non-expressive recluse. I remember constantly wishing everyone would just leave me alone. I actually resented having people care about me. It would have been easier if everyone just left me alone. Have I mentioned that, that I, uh, I didn't know how to kill myself? Have I brought that up yet? Yeah, didn't really know how to do that. So I knew a few things for sure. I hated guns. I was too scared of hanging myself. And there was no way I was going to jump in front of a train. Although the train thing did run through my mind many times as I took the Long Island Railroad into New York City. I decided on Tylenol PM. Yep, that's right. Tylenol PM. What the? So how in the world did I think I would die from this pitiful attempt? Well, what ended up happening was I threw up an entire bottle in my room, and that was right next to my parents' room. Now, I was just sick, and since I wasn't dead, I had to tell my mother. Can you even imagine this scene? So my mom had to take me to the hospital she worked in her literal place of business. What kind of pain was she in during all of this? I remember drinking charcoal and the nurse asking me if it was an accident or an attempt to end my life. Of course I lied, I told her it was an accident. She probably thought I had to know it wouldn't kill me. It was Tylenol PM for God's sakes. But it wasn't that easy. Tell her what she wants to hear and I get to leave. After being wheeled into the waiting room, I locked eyes with a girl I played basketball with. Oh, God, just reading that out loud makes me cringe. She had broken her ankle, okay? So here's a girl being wheeled out in a wheelchair, and I had just attempted the lamest form of suicide, humiliated my mother, and had charcoal running down my mouth. What a scene. She broke uh, her ankle playing a sport that I used to love, and I'm sipping on charcoal, okay? The taste was unforgettable, but the deep-seated humiliation and shame I felt about my life was undeniably worse. I assume some time passed and I drank again. I have so many repressed memories that I actually hope never rise to the surface. I'm better off without the reminder of how pitiful my life was during this time, and hard to imagine it was only going to get worse. I understand today that Sigmund Freud discovered these memories had been unconsciously blocked due to the memory being associated with high levels of trauma. I do believe that I've been saved from some of these living nightmares. I don't know if I could have recovered from them. If you're unsure what the term progression means with an alcoholic drug addict, just keep reading this book or keep listening. 
I think my picture should be next to the definition in the dictionary. A little, uh, yeah, a picture that's just uh, progression and then me. I think my picture really should be in the dictionary next to that definition. So a little recap is warranted. I suppose considering I haven't really painted a picture of the consumption, I drank a lot. By the time I was 19, I was drinking Coors Light with a shot of tequila. Then I started drinking pints of blackberry brandy. It became one of my favorites. Cocaine was next. I have a vague memory of my parents giving me money to buy a car, but instead I snorted it. I also pawned a lot of jewelry. I sold James Taylor tickets that they gave me for drugs. And a lot more horrific things that I'm completely ashamed of admitting, but that's the reality of a drug addict. I moved in with an old man named Al that I met at a bar in West Hempstead, Long Island. Ugh. I remembered... (laughs) So, just a little sidebar, everybody. I remembered this while I was writing the book. I had completely blocked it out of my mind for 25 years. So, yeah. I hope you uh, watched the video that Alyssa did about the, uh, the recap of me writing this book. Because it was, it was pretty traumatizing. Anyway, so I move in with this old man, Al. All right? And he was a true-to-life alcoholic. And absolutely perfect sugar daddy for me. I didn't even know what the term meant growing up, actually, but that's how everybody introduced us at the bar. This is Sharon, and you know Al, her sugar daddy. It was pretty obvious. I was 19, and he was 150. So he drank from the time his eyes opened and just kept going until he passed out. I would take his money and go back to the bar, and I assume at some point after that is when I smoked crack. Truth is, I forget all about when I smoked crack. I forget when I met Al, and I writing this and reading this out loud, I currently feel sick to my stomach. So that time in my life is innocent, though, (laughs) if you could imagine, in comparison to what happened next. When there's a choice between telling someone you smoked cocaine versus smoking crack, cocaine somehow seems more acceptable. There's a lot more disgust surrounding crack, but really, people, it's the same thing. I have no recollection of when or where I was when I took my first hit But I must have loved it because it brought me to places I never, ever thought I would see and introduced me to people I never thought I would meet, and it took away more than it ever gave me. But I am forever grateful for crack today. I do know that I went from Al's place in West Hempstead to New York City. Maybe I took the Long Island Railroad. Who knows? I really don't know how I got there. I vividly do remember... It was a bright, sunny day, and I was walking down 7th or 8th Avenue in the city, and there was a bar wide open with music cranking. It was called Cocktails. It seems appropriate, right? I remember a big yellow sign and a man standing outside, and he invited me in. I think it was actually a gay bar or a lovely establishment for transvestites. There were some of the prettiest men I had ever seen, and uh, they taught me how to play pool actually still play a mean game of pool thanks to them. I was soon introduced to the concept of after-hours bars, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. I never wanted the party to end, and now it didn't have to. So maybe you're wondering where I lived. Yeah, well, me too. Almost the same as I never liked to admit that I smoked crack. I never liked to say that I was homeless, but pretty sure I was. 
In my grand delusion, I randomly showed up at my parents' house because I thought I looked fine. I remember thinking, like, it's Sunday, you know, it's, it's family day, it's Sunday. They would, of course, want to see me. I must have been hallucinating a lot because I believed all the lies in my head were facts. I also didn't see anything wrong with being in a bar with transvestites in the middle of the day. These were my people. It usually gets worse, though, before it gets better. See next chapter. So here's my business life parallel, okay, everybody? In my first years of recovery, I told people I did cocaine versus saying I smoked crack. I was ashamed of who I was, even around recovering alcoholics and crackheads, yo. I was young, and I was young in recovery. I felt totally insecure and confused about who I could trust. This fear of being judged was also familiar when I started my business. If anyone asked about college, I told them I graduated with a business degree. I did, in fact, attend college, including a private business school, but I just never graduated. I felt those really similar feelings of shame and insecurity because I was working with some high-level professionals. More about that in later chapters. After my first year in business, I gained security and stopped stretching the truth. It was also a great subtle reminder that I must live a life of absolute honesty in order to stay sober. As soon as I offered my humble truths, that sounded like Joe Pesci saying that, my truths. Let me try that again. As soon as I offered my humble truths, well, actually, the word truths in and of itself is hard to say. I digress, as always. The healthier I became in life, the healthier I became in business. It turns out that plenty of people do well in business despite dropping out of college. Just saying. I also want to just point out that I spoke at a medical conference, uh, I think it was three or four weeks ago, and they must have taken my profile off of LinkedIn, and they read that I had my my bachelor's in business, Like, <laughs> and my husband was sitting at the end of the room, and I'm sure he was like, oh my God, where the hell did they get that bio? All right, um, so the business tip right here, listen up. Be your authentic self, always. Humility and truth, always, always, always win. Chapter three, I blacked out and woke up in Detroit. I woke up in Detroit, Michigan and stayed for two years. It's the coldest place on earth. I drove there with some guy, the new story of my life, His name was Spokane. I didn't know this was an alias. I thought it was a combination of spoke to a bicycle and cocaine. Spokane. I was dead wrong though. He was from Spokane, Washington and a very bad man. I assumed the conversation went something like this. Want to come to Michigan with me? Then I said yes. I was in another blackout when I arrived and I remember thinking when I came to, well, at least nobody here knows that I have a drinking problem. Everyone can leave me alone now. I can start over. There was nobody to answer to, a fresh start, another delusion. I don't know what Spokane looks like, if I left him at a bar or what, but I was about to meet my next true love, Bear. Full name, Sugar Bear. He had just gotten out of Jackson State Penitentiary after doing 11 years as a kingpin drug dealer. 
Important I tell you that I didn't even know what that meant, but I was oddly impressed. Can we just uh, please stop for a moment and remember where I came from? A residential area, private school, loving, happy family. What the hell happened to me? Why was I so attracted to this life? How on earth did I survive? Bear was married. He told me he was divorced. It didn't matter. I didn't even know who the hell I was and I didn't care anyway. I was introduced to a lovely bar in Detroit called Brent's. The sign read Brent's Place, where friendly people meet. I had no idea I was in one of the worst crime cities in Michigan. I didn't know or care about anything because I was drunk and high all the time. The fact that I never did heroin is a miracle because the bartender did and he was to become a friend of mine. Turns out that alcoholics really look out for each other. This is important you know. He told me to stay far away from it and I listened. I saw how sick he used to get when he went without it and it scared me to death. I had a bunch of friends with nicknames from the bar and well, of course they were allies more than anything. Papa Homie, Clarence Carter, and Old Man Rick. A jukebox played 11 songs for a dollar and I shot pool a lot and I bartended whenever they need someone to fill in. At the time, I really loved it there. It was to become my new home for two years. Larry lived above the bar and the daytime bartender Sharon was to become a friend of mine and my roommate. Our problem, well, only problem was she had four kids and a husband that was addicted to heroin. I was there a few times when Child Protective Services took those beautiful children away. It was a bad scene. Bear would pretty much be a bad guy all day, maybe go see his wife, who knows, and then would come hang out with me at Brent's when he wanted some entertainment, I guess. He introduced me to all his drug dealer friends. They were all super rich and most of them had a wife and a girlfriend. Seemed pretty standard around there. I'd get wasted and who knows what I did, but I know my pocketbook would end up in dumpsters a lot and my parents would get a phone call. It would sound something like this, I guess. Hi, we found what we think is your daughter's purse in a dumpster here in Detroit. So mom and dad thought I was dead a few times and that makes me sick to my stomach, especially reading this out loud right now. There were candles lit up in every church from New York to Ireland. I had everyone in my family worried sick. I had complete and total disregard for everyone that ever loved me. I just needed to stay in Michigan because nobody tried to get me sober. Everyone wanted me high and drunk, and that's how I wanted to live my life. I was no longer depressed. I was literally drunk or high 24 hours a day. I never gave myself any time to feel anything. I stayed wasted. I was only 20 years old, not even legal to drink yet. I was too afraid to be depressed again, and those AIDS symptoms I had when sober were gone now, so it's probably best to stay inebriated. I saw a lot of things a 20-year-old 20 20-year-old 20 girl should never see. <sighs> yep, that's me crying. <laughs> I'm not gonna edit anything in this audio. So just give me a moment. I watched a woman die from a heroin overdose 
and saw way too many fights break out in that bar. My bar friend Debbie had two sons my age and one of them was murdered. There were gangs all over the place and I was told to never dress in black and red. I only wore black, so that was never a big problem. Bear was physically abusive, but I was always drunk and never felt a thing until one very long and cold night. Bear booked a nice hotel after dinner on New Year's Eve. <laughs> it's funny reading that out loud. I mean, do I even know it was a nice hotel? I, I, don't, I have no idea. I, maybe in my delusion even writing that, I want to envision it being a nice hotel to make it sound better. But I don't really know if it was a nice hotel. I can't imagine. Anyway, he booked um, this hotel after dinner on New Year's Eve and I passed out and he passed out drunk. I was so pissed off because I wanted a party and ring in the new year and this fabulous life I was living. Seems crazy to me to write that or read it out loud because I can barely stay awake until past 11 o'clock today. I decided in my drunken fog to take his black Ford Tempo and pick up some friends from Brent's place to ring in the new year. Well, Another miracle I would survive because when I came to, the car was completely totaled and I was passed out in the driver's seat. I knew I was going to get my ass kicked and don't even remember today what I did or where I went, but he found me and let's just say it wasn't a good day for me. He later dumped me off at the bar and my face was so swollen that my friends gave me a beer with a straw in it. That was the nicest thing they could have done for me and my eyes are tearing up as I read this now. They knew I needed a drink. That was the most important thing, and I will never forget that, because it was the catalyst for me to consider going home. I felt love from a bunch of alcoholics, the same kind of love my family gave me. It felt safe and warm. I realized you might not understand that, but for my fellow Alkies, you get it. We have a dear family friend who is a private investigator, and I understand he had been looking for me quite some time seriously during my time in Michigan. Mom and Dad also sent some airline tickets, bus tickets, always asking me to come home when I would call in times of weakness. I was so completely delusional. I, I think I told them I was working in a top-secret position at, like Chrysler, and I couldn't give them any information. I know they didn't believe me, but I want you to know that alcoholism and addiction gives us this extreme false sense of self, and we lie a lot. It's the norm. So many lies didn't even, I didn't even recognize the truth anymore. I didn't even acknowledge that I was Irish. I told people I was Italian. I also gave everyone my alias or nickname. <laughs> it was Louis Caplatz, okay? That's right, Louis Kaplotz. Can you even imagine how far gone I was at this stage? I called myself Louis before I got to Michigan because my voice always got so hoarse all the time from the pack and a half of Marlboro I smoked and the crack. I now have polyps on my vocal cords as a result and I have a hard time in loud places because I can't strain my voice or I won't have one at all in the morning. Uh, ironically, I'm recording this entire podcast and the polyps are acting up, but I'm going to keep going because, you know, I've been through worse. So I started to think about seriously going home after the straw and the beer incident. I don't recall how long, how long it took 
I believe just a few months. I called my parents, I told them I wanted to come home and they sent me a Greyhound bus ticket and I said goodbye to Brent's where the friendly people meet. It was a very, very long bus ride home next to a very, very smelly man, but I was ready. I was finally exhausted from this life, but I was terrified they were going to make me stop drinking. I knew I could live without the drugs, but I didn't want to be without the alcohol. Those two years in Michigan made me grow up really fast, and I'll always remember the hell I lived in every day, or like not, like all of it. I just remember it was hell. I told myself I was meant for that life, but the truth was the old me wanted to come back really bad. The one that loved and cared about her family. I gave almost no thought at all to everyone that loved me back at home while I was away. I had a brother that was only 10 years old at the time that didn't know what was wrong with his sister. An older brother I probably damaged in ways I don't understand. It was a dark, dark time for all of us. I was scared to face it all, and I knew I wasn't ready to put down the alcohol yet. Business Life Parallel You can't run from who you are, in life or in business. If you're attracted to drama in life, it will follow you in business. If you are as blessed as I am, you will come back to your authentic self quickly and embrace your truth. You will only attract what you give out. I was a sick and suffering alcoholic drug addict that attracted the same in life. I was an insecure businesswoman in my first year that attracted some similar type colleagues. Business tip, no matter where you are, there you go. So just be you. Chapter four, the crane to recovery. I was back home in East Rockaway with mom, dad, Paul, and Sean. It's all a blur. All I know is I was instantly safe and there was absolutely no pressure on me to function as a human. Everyone was simply relieved I was alive. I was home. Looking back, I know I must have been completely traumatized because I had just left two years of destruction. I had been homeless, abused, lonely, cold, broke, isolated, drunk, and high for two solid years. I hadn't celebrated a holiday, no home-cooked meals, and not a sober breath was drawn the entire time I was away. I was safe, though, but I was not well. Nobody asked me to get sober. Not one person mentioned what happened or even asked about my time in Michigan. We all just moved on like it was some kind of nightmare. We were all woken up from, and now we were going to function like a family again. I'll never truly know what that was like for my family, and I feel extreme guilt as I say these words. It feels like some conversations are going to arise from this book. Things with my brothers are still unresolved. Mom and Dad were simply relieved I didn't die. They had gone through their own trauma and turmoil in their marriage, and my younger brother was parented a little closer because of my path of destruction. Sorry, bro. It comes up still. All these years later, the pain has yet to fully heal. That is trauma. There is simply no other word to describe it. On August 11th, 1994, I had my last drink. That just happens to be tomorrow, everybody. It's Saturday morning, 
August 10th, I'm sitting in the Clearwater Beach Hilton Inn. Okay. And my parents, by the way, are two rooms down the hall. So, like, we're going to have breakfast soon. But getting back to the story. August 11th, I had my last drink. It was my mother's birthday. Celebration at the East Point Inn. For all my fellow people from East Rockaway, New York. Remember the East Point Inn? My God. We always went there for fancy dinners. So I remember drinking that Coors Light, but I kept spilling it because I knew I couldn't do this anymore. That was it. The last time I had the taste of alcohol on my lips was 25 years ago. Wow, it's amazing to even read that out loud. I told my mom that was my last drink, and I'm pretty sure to this day that has been her favorite birthday gift. I went back to a 12-step program and was welcomed with open arms. I didn't have a car or a job, so a different member of the fellowship would take turns picking me up. I was detoxing with shaky hands, but nobody laughed at me in that church basement. They told me to hold my coffee cup with two hands. So simple, yet so profound. I didn't speak much, but I made it back to the place that would ultimately save my life. Through the years when speaking to others in recovery, I always referenced a crane. It would pick me up from trouble and place me gently back to where I belonged. I feel like this scenario has happened to me many times in my life. I believe in my soul that I was saved, truly saved, from facing death so many times. There's a wonderful prayer I believe everyone knows, and I feel it represents the crane so perfectly. I want to share one story when I was in Michigan that I know without a doubt that I felt God's presence. It won't be easy for my family and my friends to read, but it's important to me that you know I was carried. So I was in this drug house one night and I must have done something really bad. Are you shocked at this point that I don't remember what it was? All I know is there was a man burning a stick and telling me he was going to get it nice and hot and put it in my eye. I was a crying mess, but vividly remember closing my eyes and then looking up at the wall the footprints prayer was hanging directly in my sight. I read it to myself slowly while he burned this stick. An incredible sense of calm immediately came over me and I knew I would not be harmed. The cops arrived and we all ran for our lives out of the crack house. The footprints prayer. One night I had a dream. I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord and across the sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to me and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of my life flashed before us, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that many times along the path of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in my life. This really bothered me, and I questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why in times when I needed you most, you should leave me. The Lord replied, 
my precious, precious child. I love you. And I would never, never leave you during the times of trial and suffering. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Mm, that prayer, right? So I've been carried in place and safety so many times, everyone. I can't deny a greater purpose to be here speaking to you today. To whoever might be reading this or listening to it, I hope this prayer touched you as much as it forever changed me. This crane I mentioned brought me to recovery, but there was a lot of a lot to face ahead. Nobody said it was going to be easy, and they were not lying, whoever they were. So just a sidebar about this, you know, um, just recently it came up um, about God and religion and spirituality. And I was emphatically told by some people that, um, that the program that I belong to is a religious program. <laughs> it makes me laugh even saying it out loud because trust me when I tell you, we would not all be there if it was. Okay. <laughs> all right. So back to, uh, back to the story, business life parallel. Okay. If you experience toxic behaviors in the workplace, it will affect you personally. I was traumatized from the life I was leading in Michigan, and it has crept in throughout my recovery. Memories flooded as I wrote this book. I've experienced many levels of toxicity throughout my career and have had long-lasting effects. So I witnessed it today almost daily in my consulting business. Many employees cry to me because of abusive behaviors from employers, from colleagues. So if you stay too long, consider yourself in an abusive relationship. When you experience tumultuous relationships, even in the office, they can easily traumatize you, okay? So there's my business and life parallel. I know it's extreme. There's no stick burning and going into an eyeball. <laughs> that's, a little, that's a little dramatic there, that life parallel. But trust me when I tell you that that makes me really, really think very seriously about who I surround myself with, even in business. So my business tip is leave. Chapter five, 21, sober and suicidal. I was going to meetings and feeling withdrawn. I slept a lot and I didn't want to leave my mom's side. I was like a child again who needed her mom and thank God she was there. Dad was very supportive, but I felt safe in mom's arms because I knew she carried, I knew she was carried many times in her life too. I realized that when we watched Oprah together after school and after General Hospital, even though sometimes mom denies that we did that, wink, wink. <laughs> when mom cried watching Oprah, I knew she too experienced trauma in her life. We didn't need to talk about it. We were just together. That was enough and was certainly the reason why I needed to be held by her again, like I was a child. I knew she understood without saying a word. I started going into a very dark place, and I didn't know what was happening. I was home, sober, safe, going to meetings, recovery meetings, and I was incredibly sad. I had so much time on my hands to think. I thought about those years I'd lost all my friends were graduating college and starting their lives and I was starting mine over again. I felt different. 
I was going to meetings where everyone was so much older. <laughs> These 12 step programs had a, a, people that were a lot older than 21. I envisioned bleak existence ahead. The feelings were hauntingly familiar. I began to sink back into a depression. I was offered the opportunity to go back to college, this time a private business school called Briarcliff. Mom and dad said I could go at night because they knew I didn't want to be around people my age. I didn't want to explain the gaps in my life to anyone. I took some classes and had an incredibly hard time retaining any information. There was no stress or expectation since my parents made it perfectly clear that I needed to go easy on myself. I did it as long as I could and then asked to take a break for a while. I didn't realize at the time that my depression was about to take over. I actually just thought I was stupid and losing my mind again. Maybe it was all the drugs and alcohol I consumed. I started to believe my brain was severely affected. I could no longer process thoughts and verbalize them intelligently. I stopped going to college again and spent majority of my time sleeping and watching television. Sobriety was not getting easier. It was mentally debilitating. I was going into a very dark place. I didn't know exactly what was happening, but it certainly felt familiar. I slept for endless, endless hours, and the very thought of getting out of my bed was exhausting. I was numb. I did not feel sadness, happiness, or loneliness. I felt nothing. The television was on all the time, but I knew, I never knew, or cared what was showing. I absolutely needed my TV because it was all I had to drown out the horrible noise that was in my head. It was my only connection to some sense of normalcy. If my parents came in to check on me, I would appear engaged in the show. I remember hoping they wouldn't ask me what it was about because I, I actually never knew. To this day, I do not allow myself to watch a lot of TV. It reminds me of those dark days. Members of my 12-step program were still picking me up and taking me to meetings. I would have preferred to stay home, but those people were pretty damn persistent. Didn't seem to matter to them that I didn't speak. They just wanted me to keep coming back. I think my parents were simply grateful I was home and assumed I would eventually get back to myself. They certainly didn't make me feel bad about spending all my time in my room sleeping and watching television. Everyone was walking on eggshells around me probably because I looked like a zombie and I had no emotions. I remember feeling like literal fear if I heard the doorbell and voices that weren't my family. I was terrified that they would want me to come downstairs and interact with another human. It happened once in a while, but I would typically tell them I didn't feel good. While that was true, it had nothing to do with my physical health. These were very dark times. I was disappointed every day that my eyes opened. Every time someone would mention a future event, I vividly recall thinking I wouldn't be there to see it anyway. I believed I would be dead. I wanted to die. I didn't see any other way out of this hell in my mind. There was no hope, no light at the end of the tunnel. Before I went to sleep nights, I believed I'd be gone in the morning. I did not think it was possible to feel this way every single day. It was like a never-ending bad dream. I would wake up with the same feelings of hopelessness day after day after day. I was 21, 
sober, and suicidal. I was finally legal to drink. I could never drink again. I had absolutely no escape from my mind and was forced to live inside this mental prison daily. There was only one thing going for me. I had no desire to drink or drug. To this very day, that compulsion has been lifted and never returned. It's a miracle, right? I knew it was literally dangerous for me to safely drink again because I never knew where I'd end up. That was a fact that had been proven. I had an allergy to alcohol and I had admitted complete defeat. I mentioned in an earlier chapter that I have a very large family. This extension of Ireland was on display for everyone to see at our very own picture gallery in our house. If mom ran out of frames when someone mailed another baby photo of yet another cousin, she simply just leaned it up against the last one. <laughs> Sometimes they ended up on the refrigerator with a big old magnet and literally everyone was on display. Well, to this day, everyone is on display. Pictures of my brothers and I were everywhere. All of our school photos, team photos, Santa pictures, and Christmas parties at 6 Lawrence Street were gathered all around the house. I found it very painful to see these pictures because I couldn't connect to that girl anywhere. She was gone and it was excruciating to see that she was once happy. I didn't know how to get back to her, but I desperately tried. Believe me when I say that this podcast is for you. Because I'd like nothing more than to like stop or edit. <laughs> but I'm just going to keep going. The thoughts of committing suicide. Oh, God. <clears throat> Sorry. The thoughts of committing suicide were strong now. And I began considering how I was going to do it. I started hiding these photos. Because I believed it would be easier, that the pain would be easier if those photos weren't there. I realized today that this was a ridiculous thought. But dare I mention now how crazy it is when someone claims that the act of suicide is selfish. I absolutely know today that I did not kill myself because I couldn't bear the pain. That my family would go through. God, I hope, I hope you hear that. I hope anybody that hears that today, this me humiliating myself and crying on this podcast, that I hope that you hear that today, that most people, when they want to attempt suicide, it's because we think we're a burden on you. Oh boy, it's hard to see the screen now. All right, here we go. Yeah, I said it. I felt like a terrible burden 
I know many people that have suffered from depression and that still struggle, struggle today feel the same exact way. Because of that, I completely empathize with the inability to believe it could ever get better. And I understand why people end their lives. Depression is an insidious disease similar to addiction, but worse in my opinion. It takes over your mind and it speaks to you in the most horrendous ways. <laughs> Jesus, chapter five, this is not getting easier, but here we go. I'm just gonna plug through this now, hopefully and read it fast because this is torture. <laughs> All right, I practice throwing myself down the basement stairs, everyone. There was a beam at the end of the first landing that I thought would do the trick. The only other possibility in my mind was to jump in front of a train. I didn't want to touch a gun. I had never even held one and still have a healthy fear of them, even today. So that was off the table. I hate guns. Oof, man, that just sent chills down my spine. All these children being killed by these stupid guns today. Anyway, we get back to the story. I'm talking to myself, to you, out loud, right now, while reading the podcast. All right, so guns was off the table. Pills didn't work the last time. Remember? Town all PM. Although I'm sure if I took something stronger than that town all PM, it might have worked. YouTube and Google didn't exist at the time, kids, to offer creative ideas, so those were my choices. Obsessive thoughts of how and when began to plague me every day as the pain got worse. Mom and dad would consistently check on me and mention that maybe I should go outside, get some fresh air. They would tell me that exercise would make me feel better and I should go out for a walk. They wanted me to open the blinds and let some light in, but I preferred the darkness. Those suggestions only made me feel worse. The darker, the better. And the thought of sunlight and exercise were so far removed from my vortex, I hated myself and I wanted to disappear. They didn't know. How could they? I never told them. It's common to hear people today say, I never suspected anything was wrong. They never told me. After someone takes their own life. We don't want you to know, guys. We just want to die. If you ask how we're doing, more often than not, we will say that we're fine and then change the subject. The objective is to keep the focus off of us so you don't try to stop us. We don't want to hurt you more than we already have. So we become experts at these distractions. I can empathize with why people think it's selfish. But I hope this sheds a little light about how our brain has been hijacked. They're completely consumed in self, self-loathing, self-sabotage, and self-hatred. Please don't stop asking if we're okay, though. We need you to intrude and encourage a safe place to share our thoughts with no judgment. how it came up, but I must have said yes when asked if I wanted to speak to a professional that time in my life. I had been through my life 
and my share of inpatient and outpatient therapists, and I was beginning to think that didn't work. My dad suggested that I have a consult with this EAP counselor, Ben Figueres. I remember telling, well, I remember him telling me that he was a really nice guy and he was helpful to him while I was away, away, away. That's how we all referred to my time in Michigan. I believe that term is still holding strong to describe my blackout years in Detroit, I tell my mom and dad. My mom and dad say Detroit, Detroit. I think it's the big. So dad worked at New York Hospital, so that meant I needed to commute into the city from Long Island. I know we went together the first time, so he could show me that route. I actually don't know how he convinced me to do this, considering how I was recently thinking about turning. I do remember watching him intently that day. And it solidified I would never have the courage to follow through with that act. I was on my way to hope. And with that, no business in life parallel here. Chapter 6, Tuesdays with Ben. Ben saved my life. I get emotional every time I think about him. A crane picked me up again and placed me in his office at New York Hospital just over 24 years ago. Dad told me he liked him, which meant a lot considering Dad was a stubborn Irish New Yorker. (laughs) He didn't like or trust many. And I had put him and Mom through hell, so I knew Ben must have been special. Dad has always been very loving, but he could smell bullshit a mile away. So I was pleased that Ben was sniffed out prior to my arrival. Thanks, Dad. I barely spoke at all during our first meeting and that didn't seem to rattle Ben. He knew of my struggles with addiction because my father was seeking counsel from him while I was away. I'm sure he asked me some questions and I probably gave him some very short answers, but I felt no pressure. He asked if I was having thoughts of suicide and I said yes, many. I'm sure he took all the proper precautions And then he referred me to a psychiatrist to prescribe 20 milligrams of Prozac. Ben said this would help lift the fog I was in, and if it didn't, we would figure something else out. He said we would figure something else out. That's important. He was on my team, and I felt a touch of hope. I scheduled a follow-up appointment the following Tuesday. That was a major improvement since I referred to the last therapist in Manhattan as Polly Wanna Cracker. I'm sure she was lovely, but she was just way too uptown for me. And I wasn't ready for a sophisticated woman. I felt too insecure to be around someone so elegant when I felt like complete shit. Ironically, she was a recovering addict and told my parents I reminded her a lot of herself at that age. (laughs) Ben was gentle, easy, soft-spoken, and calm. I didn't feel pressure to talk, which is exactly what I needed. I felt an instant connection with him that I didn't feel with Polly. Looking back, I'm positive that was all about my self-loathing and had nothing to do with her. Dad and I went and filled the prescription in that hospital. I remember this visibly, like vividly, sorry. Man, this whole audible thing, it's really tough. No wonder why people complain about it. All right, getting back. I remember this vividly because I couldn't wait to feel some relief. Ben said I was probably suffering from a chemical imbalance. It was possible this was a result of having too little serotonin in the brain after coming off all the drugs and alcohol. 
I assume this is one of the many reasons detox is important for an addict when getting sober. I'm going to just read that one again. I assume this one is one of the many reasons that detox is so important for an addict or an alcoholic when getting sober. We're chemically dependent for so long, and then we're just expected to function with nothing? That is my very non-clinical recovering alcoholic opinion, so stop judging. But it makes a ton of sense considering what I went through. A touch of uh, little hope had entered my bedroom. I didn't think of suicide that night before going to sleep, and that was enough to give me some much-needed peace of mind. I don't recall a massive change coming over me right away. I was still pretty despondent. But it was a step in the right direction. I look forward to seeing Ben next Tuesday. But I dreaded the commute. I'd have to walk to the train station, take the Long Island Railroad, then a subway, then a bus, and then walk a few blocks. That meant I had to be in public during the day with the sun shining and the possibility of someone speaking to me. These were all things I was avoiding for months. So I was a complete wreck and wanted to cancel every Tuesday. I wanted to cancel every Tuesday, but I kept going. Today, I think it was all part of the plan. But back then, I believed it was a sick joke. I opened up a little more in the next session me about my depression and I cried my eyes out. I told him my parents wanted me to open the blinds in my room and feel the sun on my face, but I wanted to be in the dark. I implored that he send me to a padded room because I felt just completely insane. I told him that I couldn't find the girl I used to be, that she was gone. <laughs> that getting locked up in a room with nobody around was a welcome thought. this will be the toughest thing I say. Okay, so, like, I promise it's not me crying throughout the entire podcast. Just hang in there. <laughs> Good times are coming. We're only in the first year of my recovery. And I'm 25 years sober tomorrow. All right, here we go. Oh, and by the way, Irish people, yeah, we use humor to deflect shit. Here we go. So, Ben said something next that would change my life forever. Man, I gotta get in touch with Ben. <laughs> I've been trying, I keep calling the office, nobody answers. Like literally nobody answers. What if I told you that one day you were going to open the blinds in your room again and feel good? It took my breath away and it still does today. I could not imagine ever feeling good again. So I asked him to ask me that every time I came to see him. So that's how we ended every session on Tuesdays. It gave me hope. And I slowly began to open the blinds. I take a deep breath with me. 
hope we're doing that together. I felt nice thinking that you might be taking a breath with me. Here we go. So I went to see Ben every Tuesday for six months together with my psychiatrist, who I don't remember to this day, <laughs> my 12-step program, and Ben, I was weaned off the antidepressants entirely. I have not taken any medication since, and that was almost 25 years ago. I was, in, I was like totally and fully equipped with a toolbox to manage my mental health. If I wanted to be rid of depression forever, I would have to work very hard to ensure it never returned. I still pray today that I never have to endure that pain again. It's the one thing in life I fear the most. Depression almost got me, and that crane still shows up in my life today when I need to remove myself from danger. I believe today that I had all the things I needed to work through my dark time in my life. I had a loving and supportive family, no pressure, a 12-step program, a sponsor, a therapist, the right team to monitor my progress with medication, and certainly a power greater than myself. That is absolutely why it worked for me. I have no doubt in my mind today, especially reading it out loud to you. I don't think everyone is blessed with that scenario. I will continue to share with others my own personal experience and what worked for me. That is the only shot I have at not imposing my will on someone else. I don't believe that we need to offer our opinions to others about what would work for them unless it's a clinical professional. Even then, there is much room for error. We all have an internal monitor to help us determine when a therapist or a doctor is right for us. And this one's for you, Nick and Alyssa. Or a doctor <laughs> is right for us. Pay attention to that feeling. Their energy will walk in the room before they do. Trust your gut and ask a higher presence to join you on the ride if you're so inclined or don't, whatever. It came time for me to make the next step and venture out into the real world. I got a job. I worked part-time for the next six months at a law firm. It was perfect. Not too much pressure and just enough to inspire me to feel better about myself. And the job was, gum and gum and amanda, gum and gum and amanda. I said that for six months. That's how I answered the phone. There's a great law firm in Limbrook. I'm sure it's still there today. I'm hoping they updated it. Just saying. Okay. So, uh... <laughs> I slowly began to rein, uh, regain some confidence and I got way involved in my 12-step recovery program. <laughs> Dad bought a video camera to my first 12-step program anniversary and was told he couldn't record the meeting. Poor Dad. Finally something to be proud of to record of his daughter and he was shut down. <laughs> oh my God, I remember that like it was yesterday. I also remember who told him to take the camera away. So I was sponsoring three women after I celebrated my first year without doing any of the real work this, program's, this program suggests. Sonia, I love you, girl. What a miracle. <laughs> what a miracle that you survived my, my ridiculousness. So I was actually putting these women in danger, okay? 
I was giving them advice that I was making up as I went along. I had no business helping others when I hadn't even done the work. I called the previous chapter the crane to recovery, and later on, we will discuss the crane to recovered. There's a big difference, and I look forward to discussing this controversial topic that looms in the rooms of my 12-step recovery program later on in the book. It's important I mention that I never imagined ever discussing this program of recovery. It saved my life. I crawled into that place broken. And these fellow recovering humans love me back to health. And I look forward to seeing all of them tonight. My pro- And I'm bringing my mom and dad. My program is sacred ground for me. And I've always been extremely protective of it. And I've remained anonymous for all these years. I also don't care what gets you sober. And I have no opinions on other alternatives. This worked for me and countless others for over 80 years and I don't like to mess with anything that is not broken. I got an even better job next. This time was in Manhattan. I started out as a receptionist for a large telecommunications company and was quickly quickly promoted to train... What am I saying? All that crying, man, it really messed me up. Plus, my eyes are blurred, by the way, from crying. I'm reading a small telephone screen. <sighs> Because, you know, I'm in a hotel reading this to you. This was not the plan. (laughs) It's never the plan. I just do what uh, comes naturally. All right, so here we go. You want to talk about authenticity? I feel like that could also be a picture of me next to it in the dictionary. Okay, here we go. So what was next? Okay, so I started out as a receptionist for a large telecommunication company called Teledynamics. I'm going to say it right here in the book. If I haven't, if I don't say it, I don't think I did, but I'm not like, I really don't know. You know when an author says, I don't remember, I wrote the book like so long ago. Well, I only wrote the book in April, people, and it is August and I can't remember anything. <laughs> so I empathize, I empathize. It is my story, but I just, uh, I didn't put in certain names because I just, you know, I don't know how people feel about that. You know, like it's hard enough to just put my own family names and. I don't know. You know, I want to protect people. I'm like a bodyguard. I'm going to be a bodyguard later for doctors. Okay, so I uh, I worked at Teledynamics, and Bob Pullman was my boss, and he was the bomb. Bob Pullman. I'm going to have to send this to you because, like, you're in it. Man, he was great, but mm, we had a hard time, but we've gotten back. Anyway, so um, I was... I was a receptionist, and then I was quickly promoted to train, to train um, large companies throughout the city that purchased our phone systems, voicemails, and software. And then I moved up to project manager, um, you know, because uh, I was good. I was good at selling. Um, I was good at upselling, but I, you know, I couldn't depend on that. This is all me ad-libbing. Let's hope that it's not in the rest of the chapter. Okay, I'm just going to go back to reading. I wish you were here to tell me to shut up. Okay, I moved up to project manager until I broke my ankle playing softball and I had to leave that position. Athletics entered back into my life when I got sober. I had just forgotten that I had aged and didn't know how to slide into home base. My boss wanted to put me in sales since I couldn't visit my customers with the crutches. I didn't have the confidence in my 20s to rely on commission, but he saw something in me that I didn't see. Looking back now, 
I'm sure I would have killed it, okay? There are a few characteristics alcoholics and drug addicts exemplify. We can sell you a bridge and convince you it was a deal. Not everything I learned on the streets was a waste of time, okay? So in a nutshell, I recommended someone that had more skills than me to cover my job while I was out on disability. Listen to my unbelievable sarcasm here. I never went back. I could sell you a bridge or I would give it away to you for free and think you'd just do the right thing by me. Well, I learned that the hard way. You see, Bob, that's what I was talking about. Like I was doing the right thing. I recommended Taryn. Yeah, a girl that's name rhymed with Sharon. Plus she knew more than me. And I just thought that was a good idea because like I'm a nice person. Like I was a nice person when I was sober. I wasn't a nice person when I was like a drug addict. Okay, so I learned the hard way. In retrospect, it worked out to my advantage because soon after that, September 11th happened and life was never to be the same in New York City. I had clients in the Twin Towers and who knows, that crane plucked me up again out of danger. Whew. Good people I knew were lost that day and it was an eerie time for everyone. So much sadness and disbelief that our, our beautiful city looked like a war zone. I didn't know if I could exist amongst all this sadness. It was the first time I started thinking about living somewhere else other than New York. That sadness really scared me, guys. You know, that was a horrible place. And uh, one of my best friends at the time lost her dad. We don't talk anymore. All right. Going back with my crying eyes. Here we go. September 11th, we'll never forget. I was in a serious relationship now and I had my own apartment for the last few years. So I picked an an active alcoholic. Of course I did. And I ended up in the same support group that my parents had been attending. (laughs) while I was out in Michigan so they could tell me how to fix him that's what I thought that didn't work I stayed in it longer than I should have because I had had an ectopic pregnancy and he never left so that was the barometer for me everybody of a good man it was something I never experienced I never experienced a man to stay by my side through hard times except my dad but like in a loving relationship and I'm super grateful for him. Thanks, Joe. I didn't write your name in the book. So if you ever listen to the podcast, I do appreciate you and your family. That was the barometer for me though. It was my first real sober relationship. So when he proposed at Cirque du Soleil stage in Miami, I had not done the work yet that would lead me to look deeper at myself. I still had such a long way to go. This was just the beginning. So I'm just going to tell you a little something about that. Um, He had proposed to me uh, on stage in Miami. I remember um, he and I were having really, really tough times. We were together five years Many, many things were screaming at me that we shouldn't get married because I knew these things, because I knew me. I knew me as an alcoholic and a drug addict. 
I was, you know, doomed for worse before I got better. So that crane was really, really important. And that crane stands for something, everybody. Okay, do I have to say it? I know you're all very smart. I don't have to. But, um, yeah. And uh, he had invited a friend of mine that I worked with, actually, at Teledynamics. I'm definitely sending this to you, Bob. Um, Rob, my husband now, um, I don't even know if I told him the story, but I, I think I did. So my friend who I adored that worked with me at Teledynamics and <laughs> customer service, he's dead now. He was a very, very serious alcoholic. And he was there to, to film that proposal in Miami. He's not here anymore. God is so good to me. All right, so there's a uh, business life parallel there. Be wary of people in life that give you business advice and have never actually run a business. Try not to ask too many people what they think. Humans tend to recommend shit they know nothing about. That is called ego. Same is true in life. People have a ton of opinions of what works and what doesn't. Most of them have heard it from someone that someone worked or something worked. So they believe it's the end all. Your opinions are not helpful and can really mess someone up. So just stop spewing shit you know nothing about. And here's my business tip. Trust your gut. Always be wary of the experts. Chapter 7, Intro into the Medical Field. Sidebar before we get started. So I just got home. I'm in my home office right now. Charlie Brown is sitting to the right of me. <clears throat> I just checked on him. He's doing good. He says hi. My chocolate lab. And our chocolate lab. Sorry, love. I just rode my bike home from Clearwater Beach and it's, it was hot. It was so hot. It was like 109,000 degrees. We are in Florida. But um, now I feel like, you know, this might go a little better because I was reading in a hotel room on my phone. And now at least I have a computer. Oh, I hope this helps. So here we are. Um, intro to the medical field. Now I have a broken ankle. No job. And an active participant in alcohol as a fiance, right? So I'm going to 12-step program meetings, but I'm still sick and suffering. I haven't done the majority of the 12 steps recommended by the program, and I'm still participating in dry alcoholic behavior. I'm sponsoring women that I have no business helping. I'm passing on a big old mess. I'm restless, I'm irritable, and I am discontent a dangerous place for a recovering alcoholic. It's um, a place you don't want to be. It's an anger, fear, and resentment. And I got all three. I'm going through the motions, looking at catering halls, and beginning to plan a wedding I knew I wasn't ultimately going to have. My first sponsor 
in recovery was to become my best friend at the time. And I was working at, and she was working as the executive director for a large multi-specialty medical company. I feel compelled to tell you before I continue that I've had the same sponsor for the last 23 years, and it's not her. She told me they needed someone to come in part-time to do some medical insurance verification. I confidently walked in knowing absolutely nothing about the industry, but verified more insurance in one day than most of the team. So I was becoming the honor student athlete all over again that I mentioned in chapter one. I was quickly introduced to the CEO and offered a job as a client relations manager. They noticed my ability to detect conflict and quickly resolve it. This was a skill they desperately needed in the company. There were, I think, eight offices at the time and like 30 satellite offices when I started. Don't quote me. I have no idea. But it was big. I was thrown into arguments between doctors, staff, and referral partners, and I loved every minute of it. There was a new problem each day, and I thoroughly enjoyed resolving them. I had a great love for helping others my whole life, and I always... I was always the one that my friends came to for advice. My mom called me Dear Abby, okay? I didn't realize then how that gift would become so beneficial in my career. I believe I've always been an empath and I was destined to help others. I just didn't know these others would be doctors. I was quickly promoted to assistant director of operations and I had to really step up my game I was now responsible for recruiting, hiring, and sometimes terminating doctors. I began, I became, (laughs) what am I saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I began recording the doctors so I could familiarize myself with the terminology. I didn't have to treat patients, obviously, but I needed to know what radiculopathy was and the difference between like a physiatrist and a neurologist because we were a multi-specialty practice and I knew absolutely nothing about the medical field. The advantage that I had was having no choice but to push myself to learn as much as possible. Nobody was going to do it for me and I had a shot to embark on an incredible opportunity and I wasn't going to blow it. During this time, I put myself back in that private business school that I mentioned before at night. So I was working about 60 hours a week and going to school at night and I was paying for it now. Okay. It was an unrealistic thing I was doing there, Um, totally unrealistic to burn the candle this hard, and I noticed a new addiction arising called work. I realized I was learning much more on the job, so I dropped the debt and relied on my practical experience. At this company that I just am reading, I named it. (laughs) So there you go. It's in the book. We had Eastern and Western divisions. I was drawn to the acupuncturist and the massage therapist but was predominantly working with the internist orthos and neurologists. There was something very soothing, though, about the eastern side, and I asked to spend time with the director and immediately knew she was meant to be the VP of the company. Like, I knew. She was so, this is not in the book, but she was so, um, she was just perfect for the role. There's no way I could actually give any um, understanding about how positive I was about that, unless I was saying it on this audible recording right now. But she was, um, she was just calm and intelligent and sophisticated, and she spoke softly, and she wasn't afraid of anything. And I really was drawn to her, for sure. Um, 
the current one that was the VP at the time, she was consistently angry and there was constant turnover on our side. She was like a bully for the most part. And there was a fear instilled in the staff that the Eastern Division didn't experience. So I had the ear of the CEO because my friend worked so closely with this doctor and I just began praising this woman to him and subtly suggesting that she might be better suited for that role. Soon after, she became the new VP, and I was promoted to director of operations. So, like, it all worked out. It had nothing to do with me. I just, you know, made a suggestion, and he was open to it. And then she was VP. And believe me, she was suited for it, and she grew that company in leaps and bounds really quickly. So we had a a new dynamic team. And this VP led this wonderful alternative lifestyle regimen that really inspired me to make changes in my own life. So I began working out more, eating healthier, and getting acupuncture. I was reading more about Eastern medicine philosophies and would pinch myself that life had taken a dramatic turn for the better. I knew this was where I belonged in life, and I was elated about this incredible position. I took the job very seriously, and I loved going to work every day. I really did. We had the unique opportunity to inspire the practice managers and encourage doctors to focus on the clinical clinical side of medicine. Our operations team would handle it all. Although there were only like five of us, we were all in sync. We had the most amazing team, and we still keep in touch today, minus like two of them. But it's really great that we all keep in touch. We had the most amazing team. We really did. Um, At the time, I was convinced I would retire there as we continued to grow to like 11 offices and 42 satellite offices. It was a new adventure every day with tons of stress and equal amounts of laughter. Unfortunately, we weren't supplies. The team support desperately required to handle the growth, and the company went bankrupt a few years later. A selected team stayed on until the last moving trucks arrived. I was part of that team. The CEO was super entrepreneurial and quickly opened the first balance center in New York. More exciting and unique opportunities ensued to push our boundaries in business. Unfortunately, the writing was on the wall that it was a matter of time before history repeated itself. The CEO was a physician, super bright, great guy. Well, he was pretty tough, actually. Wasn't always so great, but yeah, I'm trying to be authentic here. He was great, though. Like, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't still be in the medical field, so just being honest with you. So um, the CEO was a physician. He was considering that business is not, and considering that business is not taught in medical school, which it shouldn't be, by the way, because like there's enough of clinical information for them to try to figure out, right? Like you really don't want your physician focusing on the business when they're like, I don't know, fixing your broken arm or something. So that said. There were many flaws in the plan. This pattern I would come to recognize through the years about the medical industry. Their brilliance can sometimes hinder the obvious need to ask for help. I looked at it as an opportunity to receive yet another education in medicine. This time, it was vestibular rehabilitation. I loved it, and I saw firsthand how patients benefited from our posturography machine and specialized vestibular physical therapists. So I soaked up as much knowledge as possible before moving on. I was still in this dysfunctional relationship and found myself very frustrated while holding down this big job. It must have been evident to my friend Orlando from my 12-step program 
who I reached out to just recently, but I didn't hear back, but it's quite possible he changed his number. So because he came right out and told me one day that I could really use a big book study, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I was insulted by his comment nonetheless. (laughs) I was over five years sober and still hadn't done the work, and it showed the job was becoming my priority, and I was, again, restless, irritable, and discontent. He suggested I come to the study group, and I haven't looked back since. Thanks, Orlando. I finally began to look at my patterns and take some accountability for my actions. The past was never cleaned up, and I was still blaming other people for my problems. I never really made direct amends to anyone or asked for forgiveness. This was a whole new side of the 12-step recovery program that I didn't even know. I didn't even know it existed. I was going through the motion, showing up, not drinking, and telling my drunk stories, but they simply weren't enough. There was more to be done, and I began falling in love with my recovery program in a whole new way. I'm forever grateful that Orlando had the courage to love me enough to tell me the truth. I have found that there aren't too many people in the world like that, but that's what I wanted to become. I wanted to be somebody that could be trusted, a woman with honor, pride, and dignity. The entire way I lived my life up to now in recovery was about to change, slowly. I was still going to make many mistakes. I was slowly making progress, broke up with my fiance, with the help of this other support group I was attending, and started getting more involved with these study groups. I introduced it to a few of my friends and a little tribe of us started this process together. It was great, and I ended up dating someone who was also very dedicated to this work. He was the complete opposite of anyone I had ever dated, okay? He was flashy, arrogant, confident, successful businessman. He drove a black Mercedes and was extremely smart and respected in this industry. I thought since I was getting better, I was attracting a higher caliber. Wrong! He was a complete narcissist borderline personality disorder, okay? That's what I was attracting. (laughs) Something was very, very wrong, but I denied like all 900 warning signs. I guess I should have thought it was odd that he didn't want me to tell anyone that we were dating. He had just broken up with his fiance, so he says, and she was in rehab. So he didn't want her to find out because she was fragile. Now talk about a narcissist. You should really read up. This is a sidebar. It's not in the book. But you should really read up about what narcissists really do. I mean, he really had me he really had me going there. Pray into the person who's an empath that would feel bad for somebody being in a rehab. Yeah, that was really smart. Wow, this is so I write after that. Wow, this is humiliating to write. Yeah, it's pretty humiliating to say out loud too, okay? I was blinded by bling and believed that was actually thoughtful. What the He didn't want me to tell my friends either because he feared it would get back to her. So basically, I was a damn fool. I was emphatically told not to tell my bestie because she was a patient of hers. And well, you know the rest. So here's this business life parallel. Time gives us experience. I would have never written a book about sobriety or business without extended time and experience. I didn't have any right to tell anyone else how to stay sober when I hadn't even done the work yet. This is called being a hypocrite. I was pontificating about something I had very little experience in and my ego took over. I see this often in business today. 
There's no way I could be a business consultant for doctors without the 20 years of experience I have in the medical industry. Time gives us experience, which allows mistakes. Humility afforded me the understanding that being an expert actually means I used to be an idiot. Business tip. When you don't know something, say, I don't know. Chapter 8. Okay, so before I tell you what the name of Chapter 8 is, I wanted to mention that when I was at the uh, hotel with my mom and my dad, Rob and Cooper had left, and um, it was just the four of us. Mom and I went for a little spa time. You know, it was uh, well-deserved, 25 years. I can't have a drink. I might as well get a massage, right? So... Um, for her birthday, got her a really nice facial, me and my brother, Sean. So it was really, really special. We had this great service. And then after the massage, I had a full on breakdown, like uncontrollable crying with my mom. It was, it was pretty intense, but I got to say it was very, very healing and very emotional and beautiful. So I just thought I would share that with you. Okay. Back to the book. So Chapter eight, my boyfriend has a girlfriend. Uh, Yeah, that was going to be a whole title of a book, but I never wrote it. And I so wish that I could find the journal where I wrote about my boyfriend having a girlfriend every day, but I can't find it anywhere because, you know, I moved and blah, 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 blah. But man, that's a good title, right? So at least it's a chapter now in a book. Okay, so my boyfriend has a girlfriend. As I reflect on my journey through business and recovery, I can easily see the parallels. An out-of-control ego is anything but conducive to success in life and also in business. Okay, I'm going to read that again because I think I totally botched that sentence. I did. Okay, here we go. Let's try that again. An out-of-control ego is anything, emphasis on the anything, but conducive to success in life and also in business. Wasn't that better? Okay, so there was a book that came out during the time we were dating called He's Just Not That Into You. Ironic? I think not. There is much truth behind that sentiment, and there are no coincidences. I was going to learn a lot more about myself, it turns out, from this experience of betrayal. It could play out in business as well, and the next book I write will be called The Market's Just Not That Into You. (laughs) I laughed because I forgot I wrote that. It's pretty good. Go ahead and take it if you want to. I don't really care. So, I was to get some real lessons in humility over the next few years in relationships and business. I was fresh out of a five-year relationship when I met Cheater Boy. I wasn't even attracted to him at first. He was a straight-up nerd in my eyes. All it took was pulling up to me at the gas station and mentioning he had a dream about me. Yep, that was it. Think I still have some uh, self-esteem issues back in the day? So he was also very good friends with a dear friend of mine. So that was a whole shit show in itself. I did adore the way he loved recovery as much as I did. We went to 12-step big book studies together. And he was big into this unity church, which actually I thought was such a joke. Yes, of course I went there with him. (laughs) I already mentioned the self-esteem issue, duh. So as I reflect on this today, the relationship reminds me of my active days of addiction consistently filled with lies, secrets, and external forces trying to fill a void. I wanted to believe the lies he told me, just like the drugs. 
I wanted to believe removing myself from my circle of friends was a good idea. He would tell me that my friends weren't like us. They didn't understand true recovery the way we did. Boy, it's humiliating to read this out loud. All right, so trying to isolate me from the friends I had been with since the day I got sober nine years prior at the time. Yeah, not good. So Bear, remember him? Sugar Bear, full name? That shining example of a boyfriend from Michigan? Yeah, he used to plan ideas in my head too, just like that. That it was us against the world. I realize today these are all glaring signs of abuse. But when you're in it, there almost needs to be an act of God to pull you out of it. Or a crane. So getting to the point, we hurt a lot of people. And hurt people hurt people, right? I told everyone except my family that we were just friends. Like, yeah, that's what I did. I lied. It wasn't until we were together almost a year that we started telling people. I don't know, maybe his other girlfriend broke up with him during that time. It wouldn't surprise me because we were constantly breaking up and getting back together. It was completely toxic and I was absolutely addicted to this relationship. It scared me how much pain I would be in when we broke up. I really thought I loved him. I realize today love looks nothing like this. But try telling a girl that when she's being treated to shopping sprees. It was all very obsessive behavior, and I started really opening up to my sponsor about it. You know, the one who always, the one who always told me the truth. You know that one? Yeah, her. So I would uh, vacation in Florida with my parents almost every year for two weeks. They had purchased this um, timeshare in Madeira Beach, and I loved it. I found a great young people meeting because I was young then. Remember, I got sober at 21, so plus nine years. Yeah, I was still young. So 12-step recovery meeting in St. Pete, and I loved it, and I would visit it each year. So when I boarded the plane back to New York each year, I would wonder if people really lived in Florida. Like, do they have jobs? Was it possible to live in a place as beautiful as Florida and make a living? Hmm. I thought about this a lot the last time we vacationed there because my company was in turmoil, and I didn't want to commute back to Manhattan again. For all of you that are from Long Island, you know what that's like. I knew I would have to in order to earn the salary I had become accustomed to in that position. So I started to fantasize about how nice it would be to live in Florida. I always knew in my heart that I needed to get away from this relationship. The seed was planted. Christmas was here and it was more of the same drama with the breaking up and getting back together. And ladies, sidebar, if that's happening to you, it's not a good sign. Like, run. I know you're not going to. Don't take my advice. I don't care. You'll thank me later. So the job search would begin in January, and I could feel myself moving further away from my recovery, being with this dude and going through this toxic breakup crap. I was lying to myself. I was becoming a shell of myself again, and I started to feel like a fraud. The worst part about living a sober life is that you can't run from yourself anymore. Everywhere you go, there you are. So the words I read in my big book studies were beginning to haunt me, like I knew better. I had been saved from a life of utter destruction, pain, and depression, and now I'm denying myself of the life I knew I deserved. Ugh. I was having a complete coming-to-Jesus meeting with myself, and I knew it was time to make a drastic change. 
I spoke with my sponsor about it often. Okay, sidebar. Here we go. This is what's great about the Audible. So she called me. Today is Saturday. She called me on Wednesday. I'm pretty sure right this second she's on a cruise. And if anybody deserves it, it's her. Simply for being my sponsor. But I'm sure everything else that she does. But my God. Uh, this woman saved my life. Uh, she called me on Wednesday morning. I was sitting out, sitting outside of a Dr. Klein of mine's office with Alyssa sitting next to me. And she was saying the most beautiful things because she knew she was going to be on a cruise and not be able to call me and wish me a happy anniversary tomorrow. So, Cynthia, I love you. And I knew you loved me. And thank you. All right, back to the story. So, oh, where was I? All right, so, la, 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 I was coming to Jesus. Yeah, I spoke with my sponsor about it often. What would it be like if I moved to Florida? I had been convinced throughout my recovery years that I had developed a seasonal disorder. I really am still convinced that that's what happened. It became really difficult to constantly see the gray skies in the winter, and the cold was just ridiculous. Never mind the cost of living. I would have to work back in Manhattan to afford my little apartment in Long Beach. And by the way, I used to call it a um, ground floor apartment, but it was really basement. Um, everybody would say that too when I told them that because, you know, New Yorkers, we tell each other the truth most of the time. <laughs> most of the time, except, you know, my boyfriend that had a girlfriend. All right, getting back. But uh, this apartment was insanely priced. So I felt in my gut at that time, I had a real chance now to take a risk and head south. I thought the timing was right with the company dissolving and the uneasiness I felt about my current toxic relationship. I was too weak to say no to this man. That's, that's the truth. And I believe deep down there would have to be many states separating us to really be free from this addiction. Similar to escaping Michigan and minus the depression, coupled with almost 10 continuous years of sobriety, I had proof I could thrive because I already overcame so much adversity. I really felt unstoppable considering what I faced throughout the years. It was literally like having a superpower. And sidebar about that, the title of this book was going to be Adversity is My Superpower. But yeah, I like the broken road to mental health more. Moving on. So a record with proof of thinking I couldn't do and learning that God and my 12-step program... Okay, hold on. A record with proof of thinking I couldn't do... And learn. I think I made a mistake in my book. Uh-oh. Editor. I'm kidding. All right, so a record with proof of thinking I couldn't do and learning that God and my 12-step program were my kryptonite. Okay, so what that's supposed to say is a record with proof of thinking I couldn't do anything wrong, maybe? Whatever. That God and my 12-step program were my kryptonite. Well, that's true. I ju- let me just put it to you very simply, because this is what I've always told everybody. I had the 12-step recovery program in one hand, and I had God in the other. There was absolutely nothing that I couldn't do. I knew that in my soul then, and I know that today. So adversity is a powerful force. So I was living in Long Beach now because the blinds were open so wide that all I wanted to see was the sun shining on my face again, just like Ben Figueres promised. I had a zest for life, and I loved riding my bike on the boardwalk, but I was limited to three months out of the year in New York. Technically, it's about two, okay? 
It was a lot of gray days. And it always seemed in New York like you work Monday to Friday. It was sunny every day. The weekend came. Yeah, it was raining. So I really needed to get out of there because I just, I just couldn't take that seasonal stuff anymore. So I started, um, I started talking to my family and my friends about it. And I set the date, March 15th, 2005. That was the move date. And it was on the calendar. When I told my boyfriend that had a girlfriend that I was moving to Florida, he fell madly in love with me. Okay, ladies, that is a sure sign of an insane person. Although Miss Low Self-Esteem over here loved that he was so visibly upset about this and we started talking about when he was going to move to Florida. Yes, I know this is pathetic. But to soothe my ego for the present moment, please know that it wasn't confirmed yet that he had a girlfriend, okay? (laughs) Oh, poor Sharon. She was so young and dumb. There was no evidence of it as he was with me most days. Now, that's true. He was with me every day except for Friday nights. You see, that was the night he spent with a newcomer to our 12-step program. Wink, wink. Okay, so that's what's in the book, but let me tell you. That is some sick shit. That man, was with, he was with me every single day and night. And Friday nights... He told me that he was taking a newcomer from the program out to dinner, okay? But he was really with his girlfriend, okay? I didn't find that out right away, but I found out later in this chapter. Let's continue. All right. Okay, reader, stop judging me. That's what it says. So, okay, listener, stop judging me, okay? I get better, I swear, (laughs) a little bit. I'm still not well. So it took a long time to get my marbles back. You remember all the drugs I took, right? On a more serious note, I haven't done a good job thus far expressing my undying love and respect for the 12-step recovery program that I attend to this day. As a matter of fact, we're going tonight. Me, mom, and dad, and my Kelly, and my friend Johnny, and a bunch of us. So like, I still go to this day, 25 years later. I want to fill you in a little about my love for this program before we go any further. This place saved my life. It brought me back from the dead and gave me a new found freedom that continues to amaze me every single day. (sighs) So true. The men and women of this program brought me back to life. This design for living showed me how to love others unconditionally. It made me accountable. It saved me from isolation. I have been loved hard by people that don't even know my last name. These people are the greatest loves of my life. This program puts families back together. I have watched all walks of life come through the doors of this program, and it is there that I learned to do the next right thing. I grew up in my 12-step recovery program. I was only 21 years old, and I couldn't think of a better place in the world than with the people in the rooms of these church basements. Okay, so, by the way, in Florida, they don't have basements. (laughs) So, so many things that are different and wonderful about the recovery program here, but it does matter, okay? In New York, we went to church basements. And I still go visit them when I come back. So if you told me 15 years ago 
when I moved to Florida that I would be writing a book admitting I was a member of a 12-step program, I would have laughed you out of the room. I have been very protective of this program and of my anonymity. I certainly would have told, I certainly would never have told a soul at any of the jobs I held. I hope it will become clear later on in this book why I felt compelled to share my story now, decades after my last drink. The crane was coming to save me again. Business life parallel. Adversity in life and in business will only make you stronger. It will allow you to take greater risks without concerns of what others may think. When you overcome hard times, you will be less concerned of what others think about you. I pretty much don't give a shit what anybody thinks. Like, only if you know me. That's the only time I care. Lessons and failures in business will make you stronger, and you will have limited patience for bullshit. The people that you choose to be around will be of high caliber when you believe you deserve it, not before. My business tip is take risks. Chapter 9. The Crane to Recovered. Friends and family threw me a wonderful going away party. It was actually Wendy at Wendy's house. Well, Maureen was a part of it. I know Stephanie was there. Joanne. It's all kind of a blur. Hmm. I can't remember everybody who was there, but I know it was at Wendy's house. (laughs) Of course it was. It's my girl. She's going to be here in Florida with me and Kenny, her husband, on Wednesday. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so they they hired this guy, right, to sing at this party, which was so nice. And I still have the shirt, actually, that's autographed. Well, autographed, you know, everybody put their names and they put like a little sentiment on the shirt for me. Maybe I should take a picture of it and show that. If somebody wants to see it, let me know. I have it. <laughs> But that was really, really sweet. I know Maureen was a big part of that. So the funny thing, too, about them getting this John Denver guy was that um, me and the boyfriend that had a girlfriend, this isn't in the book, but me and the boyfriend that had a girlfriend used to listen to John Denver together a lot and cry. Is that it's crazy? So now he, he can't come, of course, to the party because, you know, we're broken up and he's completely tortured all of us. <laughs> and... um my God, they have a John Denver singer. What are the chances of that? All right, he wasn't like specific to John Denver, but he sang like, I don't know, 20,000 of his songs, it felt like. Okay, carry on. So, you know, he he sang, I'm leaving on a jet plane, all that stuff. It was bittersweet. And nobody really believed I would ever make it in Tampa Bay after living my whole life in New York. They gave me six months. Everybody said I would be back in six months. But I knew in my heart it was time for a change, a big change. I had no doubt that I wouldn't be back because I had God in one hand and my 12-step program in another. You see, had I not told you the whole story before, that would have been a nice thing. But there, there I go, running my mouth, as always. I should have known I put it in there, but I forgot. Like, I forgot. Forgive me. So here we go. My boyfriend that had a girlfriend came to the airport with my family to say goodbye. It was a real scene. He cried his eyes out with my parents and asked me not to go. But he never begged me to stay, you see. He just asked me not to go. I was actually hoping for a little begging. 
I was scared shitless. I'm pretty sure if he started begging, I might have called the whole thing off. But the crane, or the plane at the time, was there to save me from myself. So a girlfriend of mine came to Florida with me two months prior to scout out a place to live. That was Maureen. This is when I really, and I remember playing the song Landslide over and over and over and over again with her by Stevie Nicks. Yeah, that's what we did. Played it over and over again. She probably didn't want me to, (laughs) but I did. All right, so this is when I really began to pay attention to the whispers and follow the signs, okay? This is when it all started. I had envisioned a place with a concierge, a pool, and tennis courts, but ended up next door to a USA grocer. (laughs) We stopped at a local travel agent office, and I picked up the neighborhood rental paper. There was a two-bedroom apartment for rent across the street from the beach on 13th Avenue. The ad stated, call Paul, Kelly, or Sharon for more information. Now, you see, my editor put a comma between Paul and Kelly, but his name is Paul Kelly. I really should. When somebody says to me, you know, just read it and, like, make sure everything's okay, I probably should have listened (laughs) because it's so not his fault. It's mine. That's me, though, you know? Like, I don't care. Do you care? You know now if you've listened to the Audible. So sorry for all the people that think now there's a Paul Kelly and a Sharon. It's Paul Kelly. Okay, so call Paul Kelly or Sharon for more information. Let me break this down for you. My brother's name is Paul. I'm Sharon. It's on 13th Avenue. My birthday is October 13th. And Kelly has been my family's alias all my life. When we try to make a reservation for the Cuthbert family, like even saying that to this day, I feel like I have a lisp. So Cuthbert is C-U-T-H-B-E-R-T. Yeah. So when we try to make a reservation with that name, absolutely no one can spell it. So we used Kelly our whole lives. They couldn't spell it. They couldn't say it. It was a scene. And now I'm stuck with feckity too. I love you, honey, but you know, like I waited my whole life to change my name and that's what I got. Anyway, getting back. All signs pointed to yes, but when we pulled up to <laughs> we pulled up next to USA Grocers, it looked like an office building, not what I had envisioned. Remember the concierge of tennis courts? So then a man got out of the car with a Dublin accent, asked if I was Sharon. It was literally like hearing my father's voice, and I began to cry because I knew I was exactly where I was meant to be. The Kellys are still friends of ours today. And they're our friends for life, even though we don't see them as much as we did years ago. They live in both countries. And now since I wrote this book, which was just in April, and it's only August, um, they live full time back in Ireland. I've just found this out because I randomly ran into another Kelly and that told me that. That's, you know what, who cares? That's a whole other story. I can almost hear my husband saying, just carry on, woman. (laughs) Just carry on. All right, so... Um, they live. They lived in both countries before, and my parents even got close to them. And they've stayed at their apartment in Portmonic. It says Ireland, but that's where it was. And we say it like that. I don't know because that's what my dad does, so I do the same thing. So I'm sure you see the worlds colliding here. It's an understatement to say that there were angels sent to me from up above. 
I was without a car for weeks while mine was stuck in transport, and they gave me their van. They gave it to me. I just met them, Paul and Etna, his wife. I was invited to dinners and gatherings, and they cared for me as if we were related. Paul also eventually sold me my first house a year later, and I'm still best of friends with my first neighbor from Indian Rocks Beach. And ironically, we now own a company together called 13th Avenue Media. Yeah. You know what, everybody who's listening, or like two of you that are listening, <laughs> um, it's crazy to read this because really I have been following the signs and if you don't believe, you should. All right, so here we go. I believe it was all divinely planned. These new friends were placed here just for me, and I was going to need their support in a big way. I went back to New York for my bestie's daughter's bat mitzvah, the Rinmeister. Go Rinna, go Rinna. I still love that girl. She's such a badass. She's like a math teacher, and she's so confident and so amazing. Oh my God, and to think, to think you guys were worried about her. All right, wait, now I've skipped. Okay, here we go. Back to the bat mitzvah. Um, And I was honored to light a candle at the ceremony. So of course I was going. I was excited to see everybody, especially the man that didn't beg me to stay in New York, okay? Because just so you all know, I was still with him when I moved here, like in my brain, not in reality, (laughs) in my warped mind. So he mysteriously couldn't see me that Friday night that I arrived. Remember the Friday night with the sponsee? Yeah, yeah, he was with his sponsee. So mysteriously couldn't see me that Friday night um, that I arrived. And instead, I got a call from an old-timer friend of mine in my 12-step recovery program. Now, just so you know, old-timers is what I am starting tomorrow. I will officially be considered an old-timer in this 12-step recovery program tomorrow. I really do love that because I went to a conference with my besties not too long ago and I had to fill out some paperwork and if I it said if you are an old timer let us know and you could be on this panel and I I couldn't even lie (laughs) I wanted to so bad I wanted to say I was one but I'm not until tomorrow so anyway um where was I going with that okay here we go so I was excited to see everyone in New York, especially this dude. And um, I got this call, right, from this old-timer friend of mine. He knew me when I first got sober, and he wasn't sure if I was going to make it. Bill has since passed, but he often told me that I was a miracle walking on earth. He really did. He used to tell me that all the time. He said he had something important to tell me and that I should call him back when I was at my friend's house. He knew I would need the support. In my grand delusion, I never imagined he would tell me that my boyfriend did, in fact, have a girlfriend. Bill was in charge of booking the group to attend a world convention in Canada, and my boyfriend's girlfriend called in with his credit card number. (laughs) Oh, man. That's not somebody up there intervening. I don't know what is. So he loved me enough to tell me the truth. Those are the kind of people I was blessed enough to know when I stopped drinking. 
As hard as I'm sure it was to tell me and as hard as it was to hear, I was so grateful. I would find out later that friends that I knew for years were aware but didn't want to get involved. Bill had the decency to rip the Band-Aid off instead of keeping this lie alive while I tried to build a new life in Florida. So I was on the phone with my boyfriend who had a girlfriend 10 times a day since I had left New York. He sent me money, flowers, and wrote beautiful cards expressing his love for me. When Bill broke the news, I dropped the phone and cried my eyes out. I was so freaking humiliated and desperately heartbroken. The next day, at the bat mitzvah, I sat next to his girlfriend's 12-step sponsor. Lucky me! We weren't friends, per se, but we had mutual connections in this very small community. I knew who she was, and she had, in fact, been in rehab. My boyfriend told me they were broken up for over a year, and in fact, he was with her the entire time that we were together. Whew, taking a breath after that one. This is good. It's going to get good. Don't worry, guys. Stay with me. You know, um, I'm going to take a sip of this. um, All right, it's Coke Zero. Stop judging me. I have a treat every once in a while, and it's a Coke Zero. It's actually, you know what? It's Cherry Coke Zero, and I would like to thank Terry Palenzuela, for giving me this Cherry Coke Zero. This is the first time I've drank it since you gave it to me via your beautiful daughter, Alyssa. Okay, here we go. This is good stuff because this is so true. And anybody that has gone through any kind of betrayal will completely understand what I'm about to say. Betrayal will change you forever. It did for me. It was especially painful because we shared what I consider a sacred place of recovery and hope together. That was the worst part, since my 12-step program has always been a sanctuary and safe place for me. It's where men and women are brutally honest about the most painful times in their lives. Even worse, he was in therapy every week with many years of sobriety. (sighs) We studied this most important book that I have had never read together. And it was all a lie for him. No, see, I knew I read that wrong. I was like, oh my God, another mistake. (laughs) Don't you love it when people point out your mistakes? I love telling you I know I made them, but this actually wasn't a mistake. I just read it wrong. So we studied the most important book that I have ever read together. And it was all a lie for him. I was in shock. I immediately went to my parents' house and I told them the news. I called him one last time to hear him lie and we never spoke again, ever. Now, there is something else that's big. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did say, I'm so glad I didn't just like ruin it and tell you what happened, but I did write it in the book. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I should just trust myself because all of this is true. (laughs) All right, so... 
The program teaches us, this 12-step recovery program, it teaches us, for those of you who don't know anything about this program, it actually teaches us to make amends, okay? Like, that you could, you could actually drink or do drugs or eat sugar again. Whatever, like, addiction you have, just replace, you know, where it says alcohol. You could say drugs. You could say food. You could say gambling. But it, it tells us, right? that we should make amends. And I wanted that call so desperately. Like, it never came. He never called me. He never told me he was sorry. But he died about seven years later. The amends came through one day, and I will... (laughs) I'm reading exactly... Oh, my God, I have to tell the story. Okay, the amends came through one day, and I will share that story in the audible version of this book. It won't translate well in writing. Now, imagine me telling the story and you didn't get to hear it. LOL. Okay, I wrote that because I'm going to tell you the story. It's not in the book. To all those people that like told me already that I like to read the book. I don't like Audible. Now you're going to miss the story. (laughs) All right, here it goes. So I'm now married. Okay, I'm actually celebrating my 10-year anniversary in October. I'm probably going to mention this later in the book, so whatever. Um, I was running a, a, a medical practice here in um, Florida. And, you know, life is great. I'm married. Um, I don't want to give too many clues away as to what happens next, but I get a phone call from uh, that same woman that got me the job at that first medical company, uh, she called me to tell me that my boyfriend that had a girlfriend was dead. And I, you know, was in shock. But not entirely, you know? Like, I just... I just sometimes feel like... Sometimes when we don't do the right thing, it, it comes out in physical ways, you know? I don't, I, to this day, I don't know what happened to him. I think I heard he had a heart attack. But I don't know. And it's not that I don't care, but my life had already moved on in such wonderful ways that I was sad to hear it. I thought, that's sad, but it, it didn't really phase me, you know? Because, like, I'd moved on. And it was a great learning lesson for me what I went through with him. And it brought me closer to, uh, to Wendy, my bestie, that he made me lie to. But, like, people can't make you do anything. So that's a cop-out. Like, I should have told her the truth. I just didn't. I was obsessed. Okay, getting back. So now I get this, um, I get this opportunity to write. I, I see this thing on my Facebook stream, okay? Now, this is way back when Facebook wasn't even as popular as it is now. But I keep getting this thing on my, my stream, you know, because uh, I did, not only did I run the operations, but I did all the marketing. So I was always looking for opportunities for marketing and, and learning more while I was running this practice. And on my stream, it kept saying like, Randy Zuckerberg, um, Jack Welch, the Hiltons, like all of these famous people were going to be at this conference in Orlando, which is only like an hour and a half away from where I live. And I... um. I had just gotten back, actually, from Ireland, 
with my girl uh, Cassie, right? Is that when? Yep, for her 40th birthday. We went to a family reunion in Ireland my, on my dad's side, and it was amazing. And um, really was. It was such a wonderful trip. And I just got back from that. And then after the trip to Ireland, I had also gone to New York for something. Because, my God, if somebody invites me to something, I'd get on a plane and go. Because I do love to see my family and friends in New York as much as I can. So if I get invited, I go. <laughs> Not all the time, though. Especially now with owning two companies. Anyway, I digress. The story is this. So I was really contemplating about doing this, but... I really couldn't because it was coming up and I couldn't leave my family again. And, um, but it just kept, you know, kept nudging at me. You know, when that happens, it just kept nudging at me. And I remember it like it was yesterday because my boss at the time, a doctor, was getting physical therapy at Morton Plant Hospital um, because he had just had shoulder surgery. And um, I was in that place and I got this call because I had applied. They said that you could win entrance into this event if you wrote something about a business that you were thinking about starting. And I really did think that I would end up being modernfamilycoach.com. Okay, that's going to come later in the book, but so I'm not going to get into that right now. But I'm a certified step family coach, and I thought that that's what I was going to do. Like, I just, I didn't know. But I knew I was ready to really leave the practice that I was in. But I just... Like I was stuck, you know, when you're just stuck. So anyway, one day I was at the office and, well, I got this call when everybody was at Morton Plant and it was me and I was waiting actually for Cooper. He was getting um, some uh, some therapy done in the hospital and um, I got this call that I had won, right? So I'm like, great. Now I've won the entrance fee into this event, but... I have not won the stay. And, you know, guess where it was? Well, it was the JW Marriott attached to the Ritz Carlton in Orlando. And you know what that screams? Money, 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 money. (laughs) I actually can't believe I just did that. But people that know me would understand. So I look at the website of the JW Marriott to see how expensive it was. And I click on this website. And this is when they really, webs, not that websites aren't like, you know, important, but mm, maybe I'll tell you some truth about that later. Or maybe that's another book. But the website played a video of this man and a woman walking down this really beautiful staircase. And they had a child with them. And the song by Rachel Yagamoto was playing. Have you ever heard of her even? Okay, she's phenomenal, and I'm sure she's very, very popular, but, like, not a lot of people have heard of her. Because, you see, that was uh, our song, Me and My Boyfriend That Had a Girlfriend, and it started playing, and I started crying so hard. And my boss at the time came walking into the office and he thought something was terribly wrong. And this boss actually reminded me a little bit of that dude, certain things anyway. And I just, 
I just couldn't believe it. I knew it was him. I knew it was my ex giving me a sign that I should go. And I went. And stay tuned for more. I'm going to go back to the book and see if I've like completed that story. But by the way, when I mentioned before that like I had to take a sip of that Coke Zero, the Cherry Coke Zero, um, I imagine if this is like a real uh, recording of a book on Audible, which is my favorite platform, by the way, that's why I decided to write this, because, to read this to you, because I listen to books. I don't read them anymore. Um, almost never. Except when I'm, if I'm on an airplane, I will. Always. But um, yeah, I just don't because I want to consume so much. So anyway, with Audible, I bet that they get to take breaks in the middle of chapters, which I'm not doing. And somebody like brings them a drink or there's like, you know, water everywhere. Yeah, not not here, everybody. It's just me and my dog. Hmm. Sorry. So that's the story. Let's get back to the book. So I got back on the plane after this bat mitzvah, after I heard that my boyfriend had a girlfriend. I got back on the plane and flew back to my unfamiliar home with no family, no friends, no job, and no responsibilities. I was alone and determined to never allow that to happen to me again. First, I was going to grieve with my neighbor's dog, Hobbs. Then I got my ass in the car and I drove to a 12-step meeting to tell a room full of people I didn't know that I needed help. I was almost 10 years sober, embarrassed, heartbroken, jobless, and concerned about all the time I had on my hands. I was really actually concerned about depression coming back. So they had loved me back to health, just like they did when I first arrived to a different room in New York years ago. I picked up that book, He's Just Not That Into You, And I studied it like it was the big book, like it was a textbook, because I was never, ever going to be fooled again. I made a decision to be alone, really alone, and work on myself. There was nobody left to blame but me for attracting this type of person into my life. We all know the truth inside. Our gut is our greatest barometer. I didn't listen then, but I honor that nudge today. I met a man named Jimmy Marino that was heavily involved in those study groups that I loved in New York. He was about 70 years old when I met him, and he taught me so much about honor. Great. I can never say his name without crying. Like, he's been gone 10 years. All right, sorry, I'm coming back. So he taught me about honor and love and really helping others. God put him in my life when I needed him the most. He got me involved in service work and he forced me to have a Christmas party every year at my house. (laughs) He literally forced me. He studied the book with me and reminded me often that the problem was me. He often told me not to concern myself with what I got out of a meeting of recovery, 
but to consider what I contributed to it. That advice has served me well in business as much as it has in recovery. I focus my energy more on what I bring to the table versus what I'm going to get out of it. Jimmy died 10 years ago, and 14 years later, we still have that party every year in his honor. Brian, thank you for continuing to make that happen. Mm, We were so blessed to know him. Mm. I was honored to be at his side until his last days here on earth. I miss him all the time. But I honor him as best as I can by carrying the message to others versus carrying the mess. So let's talk about the crane to recovered. For sure, I was on the path to be recovered for many years from alcoholism and addiction, but today I am recovered. Charlie Brown just grunted. Did you hear that? He's so cute. He's sleeping through this. Hopefully he's not putting you to sleep. I did actually cry again, so... Taking a breath. So the division in my 12-step recovery program is deeper, however, than a disagreement over two words. There are, in fact, two types of camps in my program today. The first is the message of recovery, documented in the big book, as given to us by our founders over 80 years ago. The second is like this new age message, which began infiltrating 12-step program rooms several decades ago and has become accepted by many, if not most, members today. Its roots originate in treatment centers and rehabs. Now, that's not to say that those places don't work because, my goodness, if it wasn't for the two that I went to and the halfway house and the mental institution that I called a sobering up station for years. They must have told me that. They must have said, it's a sobering up station you're going to instead of a mental ward. Probably best that they did that. But, um, you know, sometimes when something has been perfectly written over 80 years ago and it worked for so many because the success rate was so much better in the beginning that um, it gets watered down. By humans, right? It's just like people that make opinions about stuff they don't know anything about in business. They just pretend to be experts. And they give opinions and advice that they know nothing about. It makes me crazy. All right, so in direct contradiction to the big book, New Agers will tell us we'll never recover. We will always be recovering and never get well. The message from Bill Wilson, who's the original founding member of this 12-step program to which I and the first 100 recovered alcoholics belong to, uses the word recovered approximately 23 times. Recover, 28, and recovering, 
only twice. So alcoholics and drug addicts, we're never cured from this physical allergy. Once we take a drink or drug, the phenomenon of craving will be triggered. This is what it means to say that we are not cured. But once we become recovered, the mental obsession to drink is removed. The mental obsession to do drugs is removed. The mental obsession to gamble is removed. The mental obsession to eat a box of Twinkies while they're hiding under your bed is removed. We don't care. There's no shame in our game. We don't care what it is. Eat Twinkies if you have to. Hopefully you'll stop eventually. So the physical allergy is rather a moot point. We now do not have to take that first drink. Being recovered is conditional. We remain recovered by staying in this fit spiritual condition. Loosely translated, we work on ourselves every single day and we remain accountable for our actions. It's just a way of life. And this way of life serves me so well in business too. More of that later. But I learned from my personal experience through the years that many people stay very sick inside the rooms of 12-step recovery programs if they don't do the work required. My ex-boyfriend would be a prime example of that type of person. I can only stay spiritually fit by rigorous work with others. And today that transcends from my 12-step program to my fellow humans. I apply all the principles I've learned in the program to my personal and to my business life. Everything I know today is from this exact design for living I was introduced to 25 years ago. It has expanded to many avenues outside the rooms of the 12-step program. More of that to come in a later chapter. But just in case you think I care where you go to get better, I don't. I don't even care if you come to this program. I don't care if you read the book. I would love, I mean it would be great, but like I have no judgment. Do you do you? So here's the business and life parallel. The work is never done. Evolving and working towards becoming a better human, a better employee, and a better boss should never end. We can either learn from experiences and grow or choose to be a martyr. How about that? When life slaps you in the face a few times, you either cry or you get busy living. If if business ventures fail or clients dump you, same choice. So here's my business tip. Stop crying. Life and business owe you nothing. Chapter 10, say yes to the dress. Okay, I have a half hour to finish this book to finish reading this to you. So I might stop with the stories, although I do enjoy telling you the stories. But I got to get through this because I promised you it would be available tomorrow and I always keep my promises because that's what I done learned, okay? All right, so chapter 10, say yes to the dress. Do you believe in miracles? Well, I'm living proof of them. But if you don't believe me, maybe you will after this chapter. So I landed a job six months after arriving in Florida. I hated this job. And I I do want to emphasize the fact when I moved here, I knew nobody. Okay? Nobody. I had nobody to help me get a job. I had to rely on that stupid thing they call a resume, a piece of paper. It's going to get me a job. Really is, people. Sometimes it's all about who you know. But I'm sure that'll come later because I tend to do that 
I actually speak the truth. All right, here we go. So I hated this job. I really did. I hated it. I was the practice management director of some independent physicians association, and it was an absolute snooze fest. It feels so good saying this because it really was. Sunday nights were the worst, and I was incredibly homesick. They had me writing policies and procedures in the basement floor of a hospital. It was torture. But two good things came out of it. I made enough money to pay the mortgage on my first house in beautiful Harbor Hills, and I was introduced to the humble land of pediatrics. I literally ate ramen noodles and peanut butter sandwiches most nights because they paid me less than I was making in New York when I was in my 20s. Blah, blah, blah. The cost of living is less. Blah, blah, blah. I heard that on every single job interview I went on. And I also learned not too many Floridians like New Yorkers in the business world. I was told on my first day at that job by the CEO not to be in such a hurry to finish all my work because I would make the other girls look bad. What the fuck? Yeah, that's what I wrote in the book. I actually said WTF, but I believed it needed that enunciation. So live with it, people. It's just a curse, okay? I survived Detroit, Michigan. That doctor made my skin crawl. He told me he had an open door policy. And then one day when I called him from a client's office, he told me to hurry up and spit it out because he was busy saving lives. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on. I met a doctor's wife at an event hosted by the asshole described above. And I told her how much I hated the job. I ended up rambling about what I used to do in New York and that I was bored out of my mind. I mentioned all the hiring I had to do for practice managers, and she asked if her husband could call me the next day. Their administrator left them in a bind after quitting as soon as their second location was opening. I didn't tell her this, but I was going to sell myself for this job because this practice had an incredible reputation in the community. I knew that because I was this practice management director of this independent physicians association, and everybody used to tell me about this practice. So anyway, I got on my knees for the first time in years, and I do remember this, telling you this right now, like it was yesterday. I got on my knees, and I prayed to get this job. Now, I've always prayed. I just don't always get on my knees. Like, don't judge me, but that's true. But anything was better than where I was. And when he called, I knew we would work together for a long time. His voice was familiar, like we knew each other before. He asked what my favorite restaurant was and met me there with his partner for an interview. Who does that? Huh? Like, are you asking, like, nobody? Yeah, exactly. I knew I was going to like them. So I, uh, I told him, the funny thing is I told him Bonefish. So... Bonefish is a great restaurant, but like, that's all I knew. I, I, I had just been here for a little while. I didn't know a good restaurant to slap me in the face. Looking back, I mean, geez, I could have picked another one. But here we go. So um, I was hired that night and I stayed for eight years. I managed an office of 33 women. I grew the second location. I opened a night division and I marketed it with a music video. Okay. I was there too long, but I enjoyed what I did until I didn't anymore. 
We were all very close. Well, I shouldn't say all, but we were. We were very close. And then we weren't. It happens in business, I guess. It also happens in life. You grow beyond people that might not be evolving. So some amazing things happened in my personal life while managing that practice. So let's focus on the good. First of all, I got that job. So I'm really grateful to his wife that she was there because that was meant to be, that I was sitting there telling her how much I hated the job that I was currently at. I was supposed to be selling the business that I was in, but instead I decided you know, to follow the signs and thank God I did because um, I think if I didn't get that job, quite honestly, I don't know if I would have made it here in Florida. That place really, it did. It made me very happy. I enjoyed so many years, so many. And then I didn't anymore. So here we go. Some amazing things happened in my personal life while managing that practice. So let's focus on the good. I met my future husband on match.com. After spending two years alone working on my insides, I was 34 and I had studied that book. Remember, he's just not that into you. And I was finally ready to date again. It took a long time to renew my faith in men and my ability to attract a decent human being. I went on a few dates before meeting Rob, but knew right away when it wasn't a good fit. The book worked. And when he either put on driving gloves tried to give me an Eskimo kiss, or asked if my boobs were real, I would say, "Mm, good luck with your search, and move right along. Rob, on the other hand, was a gentleman. And can you guess where we met? Yeah, we met at Bonefish. (laughs) I still hadn't found a good restaurant. Not, Not to say that Bonefish is not good. I actually do like it. There's one right near where I live. Okay, so we meet at Bonefish. And he looked just like his picture online, which is shocking. You know how people do like those glamour shots or I don't know what the hell they do. But then you meet them in person. You're like, what the fuck? (laughs) He looked like his picture actually had a halo over his head, I think. Thanks to his friend who took the picture in the sun where it actually did look like he had a halo. So Rob, he, he was a gentleman. Okay. I thought it was a good sign that he reminded me of my childhood friend, Michael Collins. So that's the first, I don't think I've ever told Michael Collins that. And if he ever decides to listen to this or read the book, now he'll know. That's who he reminded me of. And Rob knows that. I told him. So, Michael, you're happily married. I know that. And you have kids and you have a life in Long Island, New York. But, like, like he reminded me of you. And my parents know that, too. And your mom knew that, I believe, before she passed. And my God, do I miss your mom. She's like the best freaking funny dancer ever. Okay, so Rob was single with a three-year-old son, and that was the only thing I wasn't exactly sure about. I had never dated anyone with a kid, and I didn't have anybody available for a reference about how that went down. I did mention it to someone, and they reminded me that I was 34, and chances are lots of men come with a suitcase or two at our age. So it turns out I used to drive by Rob's house every day on my way to work. (laughs) He lived 1.2 miles away from me. So let's take this in, everybody. I had to move to another state and find my love on the internet that lived around the corner. Yeah. I'll tell you the exact moment I knew that he was into me. He called me while he was on a trip with his mom in Atlanta. Yes, ladies, 
the phone actually does work when you're in another state. I wanted him to be the one. He reminded me of everything good in life. It wasn't long before I met his son, Cooper. We met at a park while Rob encouraged him on his training wheel bike. It was adorable to witness his obvious love and devotion for his child. It was a very innocent meet and greet, no pressure, just a quick introduction. I was to learn later how the crane brought me to these two young men. Rob represented everything I never experienced but desperately wanted in a relationship. He reminded me a lot of my father, an incredibly hard worker and a family man. It was refreshing that he was also funny and kind. He treated people well wherever we went and had great manners. I could always barometer someone by how they treated the waiter. I still, that's like a test with me, okay? So if you ever go out to lunch, dinner, whatever it is with me, and you're mean to the waiter or waitress, I'm thinking, mm, I don't think this is a good person. I think, I think they're terrible human beings, actually. Okay, so here we go. He treated people well wherever he went. He had great manners. And uh, the love that he has for his mother to this very day was a great sign, too. It was apparent right away that I was totally into him. I would only know if he was into me if he pursued me. And he did. And after a year or so of courtship, he proposed the day after Valentine's Day. There's a story there. But first I thought the following list would be helpful to any of you single people that might be reading or listening to this book. This is going to be great. Like, I don't even know what I said. (laughs) But there is a list here, people. All right, so the running pro list sounds like this. And this is what I contemplated prior to marriage. Okay, this is the pro list. My family loved him. He did not have an alias. He never spent any time in jail. He graduated high school, then college. He had had the same job when we met for 18 years. He lived in the same community all his life. He was not hiding from anyone. He had outstanding credit. He had two cars. He was a homeowner. He had the same friends, some since elementary school. He didn't smoke cigarettes, weed, crack. He never did drugs, and he drinks craft beer in moderation. He didn't care that I didn't drink. He's as involved, he's an involved and super loving father. He mowed, this is really my list, people. He mowed his own lawn and cooked for me since day one. Both of these things were fascinating and rewarding since I don't mow or cook, okay? And we're in Florida, so like the grass grows really fast here. People liked him, and they said great things about him. His neighbors loved him. He went shopping with a book of coupons. (laughs) Also fascinating and something I still don't completely comprehend is his love for coupons. He's never once yelled at me. Never, to this day. Boy, am I lucky, huh? He never once broke up during our courtship. Please pay attention to this one, ladies. I got dramatic a few times in the first few months and would yell and storm out the door, and we still didn't break up. He thought it would be a good idea to cool down and discuss our issues later when I wasn't so angry. Please note, he did not have years of self-help and therapy 
and recovery behind him. This was his normal reaction. WTF. He called. He texted or texted, as my younger brother likes to say, which I still don't think is right. Maybe you'll let me know what you think. And he emailed me when appropriate. He never played any head games, ever. He had a cat, Nainu, and truly loved him. At first I thought it was a little weird, if I'm being honest. Then I realized it was completely normal and masculine that he had a cat. He did not call me obsessively or act suspicious of any male friends in my life. And to that, like this moment, that still holds true. I wish he was a little jealous. Oh, yeah, here I wrote in the next one. He is not jealous of anyone or anything. This perplexed me. How does one become this way with no program of recovery? He went away on boys trips, and I wasn't jealous. That was weird. He called me from the trips. (laughs) Working out for him is simply a part of his life. He's incredibly handsome. He cried through the entire movie, The Bucket List. That pretty much sealed the deal for me. Okay, here's the con list. It's very short. Uh, I also contemplated this, and it says it in the book. Solutions are underlined, so you'll have to read the book to know. Okay, the first one is that he's a Republican. Now, In this political climate we live in today, we have a rule not to discuss politics. I also don't think being a Republican is necessarily a con or a bad thing just when Trump is in office, okay? People, I like Republicans. I love Republicans. I am married to one. I don't like Donald Trump. Okay, next. His ex-girlfriend would be in our lives forever. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't crazy about that. Like, you get it? Like, for forever. They had a child together. So I practice spiritual principles in my life. I meditate. I became a certified stepfamily coach in New York City while dating Rob and read every book I could to find out about how to best handle the situation. Cooper always comes first. Always. So those are my solutions that are underlined. All right, so here's the other con. He listens to music I don't prefer. And his dance moves are questionable, okay? And the solution to that is AirPods, okay? They're my life. He's not the best communicator, but we've worked on this together. And he's come a very, very long way. I'm quite sure, no insult to men out there that might be listening, but y'all ain't always the best communicators, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so... We were on Say Yes to the Dress. It's true. And to date is still one of the most magical experiences I've ever had. I will dive into my feelings about manifestation more in the last chapter, but please know that I believed it could happen, and it did. We had a pretty damn good story going into Kleinfeld's anyway that had nothing to do with me. Remember those 33 women in my last job? Yeah. They wanted me to go to this fancy bridal place in New York City that I had never heard of before, okay? I've never been fancy. They told me all about this show that I had never heard of at the time, and I thought, yeah, 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 this could happen. I planned to ask my New York bestie to be my matron of honor anyway, and luck would have it. She had a great story to go in with to nail this whole say yes to the dress thing. Sidebar, I had already picked out my $500 dress from David's bridal. I am not the type to spend, there's a typo, 
It says, I am not they type. I should really read this stuff. Okay, forgive me again. I'm not the type to spend a lot of money on a dress. I will wear one. Yeah, okay, let me read that again. I'm not the type to spend a lot of money on a dress that I'm going to wear one time. And I was 36 year old. I was 36? Yeah, I was 36 when I got married. Not 22, okay? I had lived a little bit. It was a dress. I didn't care. So my priorities had shifted in a big way in my life. So the wedding itself was actually going to be about me, Robin Cooper, not anybody else. It's crazy, right? Imagine having a wedding that has nothing to do with anybody but the people that were getting married. Huh. Well, moving on. So it's been over 10 years, so I can write about this with more of a sense of humor now, but believe me, there was nothing funny about it when this event occurred that I'm about to tell you. Wendy had been stabbed in her driveway randomly when coming home from work. Did you hear that? Wendy, my bestie, had been stabbed in her driveway randomly when coming home from work. She lives in a beautiful area next to a golf course, just to elaborate on the random comment. My poor friend had to drag herself to her neighbor's house and beg for help. Thank God they were home. And Wendy was coherent enough to guide them in what to do because she's also a nurse practitioner. So I flew home to New York as soon as I heard the news. And I'm happy to say that my bestie is still doing very well today. She is a miracle in the flesh two times over. So now you know the backstory. So you can see how I was selected to be on the show, right? Like it had nothing to do with me. It was about Wendy. (laughs) It's also important that you know that Wendy is straight out of what you might perceive is the epitome of a stereotypical Long Island Jewish woman. She looks and sounds like it, okay? Like she is the epitome. We love you, Wendy. But it also helped that she's totally hilarious and her personality walks in the door before anyone else So throw in the future super cute stepson, and we were mic'd up before we could finish hamming it up for the producers. Wendy totally stole the show. So I had absolutely no intention of buying a dress there and walked out with a $2,500 Swarovski-laced gown. It was an incredible experience. (laughs) And now we have just had to convince them to fly to New York and film the wedding. Like that's So that's what I... I wanted them to come and film the wedding now because this whole thing was crazy that it was happening. I just feel like I had to convince them to to fly to Florida and film my wedding. Mm, guess what? So done. The next chapter, you're going to understand why I was able to use my business skills to negotiate every last vendor at our wedding. I also had no need for a videographer. It was aired on national television And everyone that I couldn't invite could view it during reruns on TLC. To this day, it still airs regularly. And Wendy is approached all the time about it by her OBGYN patients. Uh, Pretty much nobody approaches me, just so you know. (laughs) Our family from Ireland to New York was able to see our love story unfold. And that gives me great joy today. We wanted an intimate wedding surrounded by family and friends that really knew us. And that's exactly how it went down. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't afford it, people. I couldn't afford to have the four, five hundred 
plus people that I wanted would have been great to have him there, but I was 36 and that meant we had to pay for it ourselves, okay? We were like adults by then. So, you know, we also had set a practical budget of 10K, all right, $10,000 for a 36-year-old woman and a 40-year-old man. All right, so sidebar here, Charlie Brown has woken up and he wants a treat. So we're going to the closet. You're going to hear it. We're opening it. We're giving him a treat. We're hoping he just takes one, but he knows I'm doing a podcast. And no, he only took one. What a good boy you are. All right, back to the story. So, okay. So what a concept, right? We actually did what made us happy. Our priorities were totally different from everybody else's. Um, I did get a lot of shit for not doing things the way other friends and family thought I should have. But when you've persevered through so much adversity, you tend not to give a shit what other people think. My mom had also been diagnosed with breast cancer the year I was engaged. So living a purpose-driven life was way more of a priority. Thankfully, mom is cancer-free today and living 1.5 miles away from us here in Tampa Bay. Rob, Cooper, and I became an official family on 10-10-09. After the wedding, Rob's Aunt Jerry reminded us that 10-10 was Rob's father's birthday. We both felt great pride and comfort hearing that and believe in our soul that it's all meant to be. Rob's dad had um, passed away when he was just a teenager. And of course, we wanted his dad there and I would have loved to have met his father But imagine that. We had no idea that that was his actual birth date, and that's the day we got married. So we believe he was there. We know it. So anyway, check out the show. Just search Family Ties on TLC or anywhere else you might stream cable today. By the way, that was a dig at cable. We just cut the cord. Okay. So here's the business life parallel. You can choose to believe what everyone else tells you, or you can make shit happen. You can manifest your life. You can manifest your business. You have the power to change your business and your life, but you must believe that you deserve the end result. You can leave a company because you want more, and you should. You can leave a spouse because you deserve more, and you should. Business tip. I really do hate the word should, but like, you know, I'm just saying, you deserve more. All right, business tip. If you are the business owner, You are responsible for everything that happens in your company. Leadership starts with you. If you suck at being a leader, find someone quickly that can lead a team because self-awareness is crucial in business and in life. Chapter 11, being a step-parent and opening the doctor whisperer. So if parenting isn't tough enough, what do you think step-parenting is like? I will tell you what it's been like for me. Hard. In the spirit of transparency, I had no idea what the hell I was getting into. If you could consider for just a moment what it might be like for someone like me that looks for solutions every day, where was the big book for this issue? (laughs) I remember the first time when I felt completely terrified about this new foreign scenario. I just started Googling feverishly. Isn't that what you do? My search looks something like this. Women that date men with kids. Stepmom group. Stepmom to be. 
What to do when you meet the woman who had a child with your boyfriend? Women that want to marry someone with a kid. Support groups for women dating men with children. How to succeed in a relationship with a man that has a kid. Okay, you get the point, right? I'm not exaggerating here. I did not know what to do with these new foreign feelings of insecurity. I was a solution strategist with no solution. So there were books that popped up and I ordered every single one of them. Yes, this is before Kindles, iPads, and Audible. I had to pack them in a suitcase and take them on our first cruise. (laughs) So we were dating. I was dating a man with a child and I was going to go on a boat in the middle of the ocean. I needed help. I had not one friend in the world with this scenario in their life. Can you imagine? I had no one to talk to that was going through what I was enduring. This was really unfamiliar to me because I had my 12-step program. I was used to having a place where I could share issues with people I knew were going through the same things as me with a book that had literal instructions on how to live life without a drink or a drug. So where was my instruction manual for being a chick that was dating a guy with a child? And there was no Dr. Spock books or Lamaze classes for how to breathe when you're raising somebody else's child. So I was perplexed and I was running a pediatric practice for God's sakes, where half of the families were divorced. I spoke to the doctors I worked with And they were just as confused about it as I was. And so were the child psychologists we were referring out to. How could they know if they've never been through it themselves? Like, really, how could they know? Why did anyone think the kids needed the help when it was blatantly obvious to me that it was the parents that needed the help? Like, seriously, typing this now brings up so many feelings. Well, saying this out loud brings up so many feelings of frustrations I have with the system The medical industry doesn't always prepare people for practical situations that exist today, 2019, August 10th, 2019. Things like divorce, obesity, mental health, alcoholism, addiction, stepmom. I was running a medical office that was riddled with problems that I personally either previously suffered from or was currently navigating through, and we couldn't even provide solutions. So it's very difficult for me to express how sane it is to know, insane it is to know, that there is little taught in medical schools about a few subjects that kind of strike a chord with me. Now, I'm a smart woman, contrary to what you might believe after listening to this book, but... I am smart enough to know that there are specialists, okay? So I don't need you saying like, well, you know, of course they learn about nutrition, you know, when you study that specialty in med school. Okay, that's, this is general, okay, people? So please, please, I'm not going to be very politically correct all the time. That's my warning. Just like my New York purses that I bring out everywhere. It actually, it says New York on a license plate. And it's my warning, I'm going to be truthful and honest. Sorry. Okay. So, so there is little taught in medical schools about nutrition, addiction, mental health, and the effects of divorce on a child. 
All those things seem to lead to most of the problems in our society today. We are not taught about spirituality and practicality in elementary school and high school, and doctors aren't taught business in medical school. So, can anyone else out there see where common sense and emotional intelligence and self-awareness and practicality are not infused in our society today? Like, when will we go to conferences about mental health and have a panel with somebody that's actually experienced it? Don't you think or believe that we learn the most from people that actually had actual experience with these silos? Okay, I'm moving on. Tangent over. Too many other book topics popping up in my head now, and I can't resolve it all today. Believe it or not, this does all tie into being a step-parent and opening the Dr. Whisperer. So I witnessed too many issues that provided no solutions, and that is actually what an entrepreneur does, solves problems one at a time, at least tries the hardest to solve problems, okay? So there were two problems that were glaring in the practice I was managing that I needed to solve. The first issue was that business hours were not conducive to working families. In other words, all families. So I opened a night division, okay? I opened a night division. I am taking 100% full credit for that because it was my idea. I got hit with, I don't think this is going to work. I got hit with, we're never going to hire a nurse. I got hit with it all. I'm not going to go into the details because, you know, I'm a woman of grace and dignity. But I opened that night division. I planned on executing every single decision from start to finish down to the music video that would successfully promote the evening hours the next issue is getting these pediatricians trained to become step family coaches. Doesn't that seem obvious? To, doesn't, don't you think that should be obvious right now to everybody? Oh, God, I really shouldn't read this book. It's getting me aggravated. All right, so I'd already been trained myself in New York City, and I did enormous amount of research with the founder of the only 30-plus-year-run Step Family Foundation, so I arranged for her to train the pediatricians. Of course I did, because that made sense to me. Common sense. So I had her come and train the pediatricians, the local child psychologist, some divorce attorneys, and some guardian ad litems. This is how I learned to be a better stepmom. I had instructions now, and I was educated on how there's no such thing as a blended family, people. You put fruit and vegetables in a blender, not humans. Can you please... Repeat that back with me. You put fruit and vegetables in a blender, not humans. Blended family is the dumbest term I've ever heard in my life. <sighs> the founder of the Step Family Foundation in New York City feels the same way. So anyway, it was the beginning of a journey I'm still on to understand that we are not like other families, and I embrace that today. I have a true understanding that Cooper's only chance at a successful upbringing is to be surrounded in love. All adult issues that come with a broken family need not affect the child. This subject is too big to summarize in a chapter, but I highly recommend that you, as the adult, should seek help from a qualified professional. I am the stepmom, and I understand my role as much as my husband tells me I have a say in his upbringing, 
I do not. I am here as a supportive and loving adult that loves this child, truly, truly loves this child. If it were true that I did have a say, he would not be attending a Baptist Christian school. This goes against my beliefs and only a parent has true control of where their child is molded. In my ideal scenario, we would all be in some type of group counseling, but only one person within this trio truly understands the benefits of admitting that they don't have all the answers. And that person, everybody, is me. I know we don't have the answers, and I believe there's professionals out there that can help. But anyway, now my wonderful stepchild is 15 years old, and we're good. Like, we've been good for a long, long time. And his mom adores that boy, and that's all that matters to us. And we don't speak ill of each other, and we never will, and we never would, because there's actually no reason to. We can all get along. Isn't that nice? Well, it's not the norm, people. Okay, so I have been seeking help for 25 years. And unfortunately, most people believe that there's something wrong with asking for outside help. It really just comes down to ego. Okay, everybody? And until we all, as a human race, commit to removing stigma from our mental health sector, we will stay stuck in this familiar world of ignorance Getting back to the real reason I left my last job, I was overqualified to run anyone else's business at this stage, and so I opened my own. That's not ego, that's just a fact. And, by the way, remember that story I told you guys about my boyfriend that had a girlfriend that sent me to that Orlando trip? I ended up, like, really killing it there, like, meeting the greatest people. It was all divine intervention. I got to even meet Randy Zuckerberg. I owe it all to my New York license plate purse and a little charm on my part. And then I raised $26,000 for here to come to the city of Largo to be at our event called Playing Unplugged that nobody seemed to know about because, you know, like it wasn't marketed the way I would have marketed it. But I love that city. I love it to this day. We're all getting better. Every one of us is getting better every day because, you know, we all make mistakes. Not that it was a mistake. It was fantastic. Just that, you know, I'm a marketer, and I get obsessed about those kind of things. I love it so much, I sit on the board of the Parks and Rec. I really do. I'm so blessed to work with such great people. So getting back to that real reason I left my last job, right? So I'm overqualified. There was one consistent problem I was able to isolate in the medical field that would keep me busy for years to come. Doctors struggle running businesses, yet they try to do it without guidance all the time. Hence, the Dr. Whisperer was born. I had so many physicians wanting to pick my brain. So I knew I was on to something big. The weekend prior to giving my resignation notice was spent at that conference in Orlando. So I'm reading the book, everybody. Remember that thing that it said like the Audible would know the story? So now I'm talking about the story a little bit. So all those successful business leaders, you know, Steve Wozniak, many more. And it says, again, catch the longer story on Audible version of this book. This is the audible version, everybody. It's a podcast, okay, that I own, and it's mine, and um, nobody can tell me what to do here, which is kind of nice, and that's why I'm an entrepreneur, because I don't like to be told what to do. Uh. Okay, so 
It was exactly what I needed to encourage me to call my boss on the way home and meet him for dinner that night when I went to that conference, okay? I called him on the way home and I met him for dinner. When you know it's time to go, execute immediately. If you wait, paralysis by analysis sets in and you will overthink the situation and avoid taking action. Take this from someone who knows. So I know people today that are extremely unhappy in their jobs and allow fear of the unknown to dictate their outcomes. It does absolutely involve a certain level of risk, but I never let fear talk me out of a vision. I had a proven record in my personal life that a crane will take me to the place I'm intended to be. There is no room for doubt any longer when you have faith in yourself. And it helps when you have a higher power too. So I celebrated five years in business in December of 2018. There hasn't been one day since the terrifying first year that I have questioned my path. And yes, that first year was terrifying. It was the same scary feeling I had when I risked leaving the familiarity of home by moving to Florida alone. We get comfortable and that invites mediocrity into our life. When we take risks and we believe in ourselves, life begins to unfold. My 12-step recovery program and business both parallel that sentiment. Everything takes great work and everything great takes work. And you must gain enough self-awareness to know it won't be easy. If you do what you love, it promises to never feel like work. That promise for sure has come true. So I never knew I could apply what I believed I was destined to do in life to in business. Like I never thought, I never, I just couldn't even imagine that my life would turn out the way it has. I've always loved helping others. It's brought me a great satisfaction and an intimate joy. I simply apply this passion for helping others to doctors today. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, my life, you know, is unbelievable because of that. I, I, I become a trusted space for healers to encourage growth in their practice. I'm the luckiest recovering alcoholic and drug addict I know, actually. My life has been absolutely dedicated to gratitude since that day the depression was lifted. I now have the good fortune of being able to incorporate all the principles I've learned in my 12-step program to running a business. Below is a list of these principles. Number one, honesty. Number two, hope. Number three, faith. Number four, Courage. Number five, integrity. Number six, willingness. Number seven, humility. Number eight, brotherly love. Number nine, justice. Number 10, perseverance. Number 11, spirituality. And number 12, service. So the business and life parallel here is there has to be some level of common sense applied in business. Life experience has proven that being kind and helping others also bodes well in business. And here's your business tip. Know your worth. Know your worth. When you feel it's time to go the first time, go. If a client treats you and or your staff like shit, dump 
them. You and your team come first, not the client, not the patient. Success equals happiness, not money. And dare I say now that this is not in the book either. One time I was at a conference and a woman business owner sat up very proudly on a panel and said that if your money, if your business, sorry, isn't making money, then it's not a business. It's a hobby. Well, I disagree. If you are doing what you love and you are making enough to make you happy and to pay your bills and to live a life that you feel good about yourself, then guess what? You are successful to me. Chapter 12, to the families touched by addiction and suicide. Well, since I've been completely transparent with you throughout, why stop here? So there's a little change in my tone of voice. It's um, 11 p.m., August 10th. I just dropped mom and dad off after the meeting, the recovery meeting that we went to, and I got in the car and I read a text message from a friend whose nephew just OD'd. He's alive, thank God, and um, is from opioids. And I just got home. And my husband told me that his Aunt Jerry passed away. I mentioned her earlier on. She was the one that told us that 10-10-09, the day that Rob and I got married, that that was actually his father's birthday. So she passed away at 6.30 p.m. tonight. Well, at least that's when he heard about it. And I had just left to go to the meeting. So I'm still doing this because it's that important. That's just kind of unbelievable, right? What can change in just a few hours? So pretty uh, apropos that we're going to talk about the families that are touched by addiction and suicide. Because I know there is a hospital room filled with a family touched by addiction right now in New York. So prayers going out to everybody. So first and foremost, it's not your fault. I want to share with you now the reason I decided to write this book. I've received so many gifts since I got sober in 1994. Too many to list. I never spent any significant lengths of time reflecting on this journey as I have now in my 25th year. I was taught to live one day at a time, and that is how the years all came together, slowly. One of the most recent gifts I was afforded was an offer to be the health and wellness editor of a local magazine. I've always enjoyed writing and sharing my journey with others of my 12-step recovery program, but I, I never thought there'd be a day when an opportunity would cross my knowledge over into the business community, like ever, because I had remained anonymous in business with the exception of both bosses in my last two positions in the medical industry. 
It's always been recommended to remain anonymous because there is an unfortunate amount of judgment and stigma related to this 12-step program I attend, to alcoholism, to addiction, and to mental health. There's also traditions that lay within these recovery programs that are well-respected and um, and why it's worked for over 80 years, actually. <laughs> so, you know... When the publisher of this publication asked what charity should benefit an event we were going to be hosting about preventative medicine, I immediately thought of something related to mental health. We both agreed to be purposeful in our selection. He had had a friend that lost a child to suicide and sat on the board of a local foundation. This particular foundation benefits all critical services and programs for children in Tampa Bay. We went on to host this event about living a preventative lifestyle, and as the MC, I guided the questions to the panel of physician clients and felt inspired to reveal my own experience for the first time in a public business event. There were friends and colleagues in the audience that suffered the loss of a child to addiction and suicide. I wanted to inject my own thoughts surrounding depression and addiction. I felt compelled to include some of my journey toward mental wellness through prevention. I thought there just might be someone sitting in the crowd suffering in silence. But prior to that event in 2017, the world lost two more famous musicians back-to-back to suicide, and the son of an affluent family in our community had also died by suicide. It was all around us, and I began to internally struggle with sharing my experience, strength, and hope outside of my 12-step recovery groups. I believed the community could benefit from hearing from someone like me, that came from tremendous adversity and could offer some hope. So I wanted to help, really. That's what it came down to, and I felt this overwhelming feeling of selfishness by keeping this path to freedom I found to only the people inside of my recovery group. The next issue in the magazine was going to highlight the event, and I wanted to include my experience. I asked the publisher how he felt about Does Mental Health Live in Your Home as the title, because it spoke to me as I had reflected about the thousands of children that came through the doors of the pediatric practice that I formerly managed. I was aware of so many that came in seeking help for their suicidal and addicted teenagers, and we catered to an affluent community surrounded in shame when it came to these children suffering from mental health issues. I thought the suggested title would be edgy, yet impactful, but he chose Um, a different way, and that was to put in a letter from the Dr. Whisperer, the health and wellness editor. He would allow me to insert some of my personal story, and I was so grateful and thrilled with the opportunity. I'm still grateful. The piece was edited without my approval. It's a long story. Hurricane Irma happened. A lot of things were going down at the time, and um, it went out without my approval before going to print, and I was so disappointed that something so personal was in print without my final consent. It was the beginning of the end with that opportunity, but I'm still really grateful for it. I'm also grateful for the job I held in pediatrics for so many years. I choose to remember the good today. The program of recovery teaches me how vital it is to let things go and practice forgiveness. I really don't have any room for anger and resentment in my life today. It's just a danger zone I avoid at all costs. So the crane picked me up again, and this time placed me on 
The Home Shopping's Network, a healthy you. HSN? Huh, can you even believe how good God is to me? I'm always in awe of all the grace bestowed upon me, and I feel so loved. That is why I now believe I have to share this journey with you. I'm here to tell you that there is hope. It's not your fault. Alcoholism, addiction, depression, they're all diseases of the mind. There is help out there, and you're not alone. One of the greatest gifts of a 12-step program is meeting others that have experienced similar obstacles. These new friends will help piece your life back together. When I came upon Russell Brand's book, Recovery, I was so mad. (laughs) I really was. I'm just being honest with you. I didn't think he was honoring Bill W., the founder of my 12-step program, my 12-step program. And in my skeptical mind, I thought he was trying to make the program of recovery his own and like capitalize off of it. Uh, Contempt prior to investigation, in other words. I was so wrong and thoroughly enjoyed his book and have since recommended both Recovery and Mentors, two of his books that I just really, really loved. He's got such a great personality, obviously, and sense of humor. Um, And he just realized that this program of recovery offering spiritual principles could apply to everyone's life, which is so true. These books are worth checking out. So if you're struggling with any form of addiction today, sidebar, he's much funnier than I am, and delivers a rather serious message with a fabulous bit of humor, along with a lovely British accent on Audible. Unlike mine, especially now that it's 11.09 p.m., and I've just gotten hit with two pieces of bad news. I'm tired, but I'm doing this for you, for somebody else that you might know that you could pass on, and maybe it'll help them. So a Dr. Klein of mine recently talked to me about a family member in the throes of addiction. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to email the first 164 pages of the big book because in those pages are instructions for families, employers, wives, and everybody that is affected by the disease. Like this, you don't have to figure it out on your own, everybody. There's actually instructions in a book, a textbook. So... It can be applied to you, too, if you're experiencing pain from the loss of a loved one. It'll give you a better understanding of the mind of someone who is or was suffering. This is a family disease, and it runs through lives like a hurricane. So I inserted in the book Bill Wilson's letter to a fellow member that was suffering from depression. I bolded a section that I believe is meant for all of us today, I'm forever grateful this courageous man took a risk to create a program of recovery. It's not for everyone, and I have no opinions on any other programs. Just get help. That's all I care about. We are all one, and we are all connected. So I think it's best that you actually read this yourself. If you get the book now, if you can't get the book and you want this letter, oh, never mind. Now I'm just thinking about people that maybe don't have the money to buy the $13 book. So I'm going to just read it. (laughs) Okay. All right. So it's an excerpt from a letter written by Bill W. And it's quoted in the memoirs of Tom P., an early California 12-step program member. Tom did not use the name of the person addressed, 
perhaps because he was still living at the time it was written. So Tom writes, here in part is what Bill W. wrote in 1958 to, do, to a close friend who shared his problem with depression, describing how Bill himself, the founder of the program, used St. Francis's prayer as a stepping stone toward recovery. I think that many oldsters, now remember what year it was written in, okay, people? So he said oldsters. I think that many oldsters who have put our 12-step program booze cure to severe but successful tests still find they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in our 12-step program, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result and so into easy, happy, and good living? Well, that's not only the neurotics problem. It's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all our affairs. Even then, as we hew away, remember 1958, okay? Peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many of us 12-step oldsters have come to, and it's a hell of a spot, literally. Last autumn, depression, having real, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long, chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to relieve depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It is better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right, but why didn't it work? Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, always absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon the program, indeed upon any set of circumstances whatsoever. Then, only, could I be free to love as St. Francis had. Emotional and institutional satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing a love appropriate to each relation of life. So I'm going to stop there. If you want me to send you the rest of it because you couldn't afford to buy the $13 book, please just shoot me an email. Okay. So basically, Tom goes on to say that Bill's words of wisdom helped and inspired him and many others. To those who have never been there, it's hard to describe the gratitude that overwhelms in men and women who are delivered from the black depths of depression into the light. Well, if I, I mean, I so relate to that statement. As with delivery from the bondage to alcohol... It is a hosanna of the heart that never ends. 
So just a little sidebar, I figured I would also tell you, this meeting that I went to was a, an open meeting. Um, that means that it's you're welcome to go. You don't have to be an alcoholic, a drug addict, um, a Martian. <laughs> you could be whoever you want. You could just go. It doesn't cost anything. And we went to hear these speakers, and this woman was speaking, and she was... Um, she was sober a very long time, since the 80s, and she told her whole story, and at the end, she said something that I just, it was so powerful. She had admitted that she never did any of the work for 25 years. So for 25 years, she was going into this program and helping others without doing the work herself. Man, did that take some courage. Mm. I loved hearing that because I say that all the time now, but it was five years for me. It was 25 years for her. So imagine how much courage it took her. But you know what? I know her purpose. Her purpose was like there were so many young people in this room tonight. You know, I felt, I mean, I'm 46, and I felt, <laughs> I felt ancient. I mean, they were just kids. Some of them were just one day back. Some were three months. Some were five months. But they were all like babies. And um, it was pretty powerful for her to share that. She also shared it because she uh, has since gone back to some therapy because she had um, just lost her daughter. Her daughter died a year ago. And she was suffering from PTSD and really, really grieving. And then her grandson, just the other day, was driving after a golf tournament and killed the passenger. And his life will, will never be the same again. It'll never be the same again. So... To see this woman stand up there and be so courageous and share her journey. And her only hope, I'm sure, is that she could help one person, just like the way I'm talking to you today. I just hope that anybody that is suffering knows that you don't have to do it alone. So my business life parallel from this chapter is if you humble yourself to someone about the mistakes that you've made in life and in business, you will come to understand the true power of human connection. It is in our humility that we form the greatest bonds with the human race. If you practice this in your business life with colleagues, employees, employers, you can offer an opportunity to form a bond. I know today, if I offer my own shortcomings to someone in business, we create a relationship that promotes trust. For me, relationships are the cornerstones to all success. My business tip is one of the famous lines from the program I attend. Contempt prior to investigation. This statement will keep you out of everlasting ignorance. Do your research before you form an opinion about anything or anyone in business and in life. In the words of my favorite, Gary Vaynerchuk, headline reading does not make you an expert 
and neither does your focus group of one. Chapter 13, Introspection, Manifestation, and Bike Rides Through My 25th Year of Sobriety. I've waited until today, July 13th, 2019, to write this final bonus chapter. I'm releasing this book to you on August 11th, my 25th sober anniversary, and more importantly, mom's birthday. My friend, Alyssa Palenzuela, while attending a weekend family wedding in New Jersey, is currently making edits. You don't just have friends like that who offer their services for free unless you too have overcome undeniable adversity. We currently work together in my latest business endeavor, 13th Avenue Media, but truly know that the crane has been involved in our divinely inspired union. My buddy Scott is the co-founder of this business too. You know the one. The one that lived in the same building as me? Okay, we're going back a few chapters. But here we go. So, the crane does it again. Fellow members of my 12-step recovery group informed me that I should not mention the actual fellowship I belong to, so all references are currently being removed in New Jersey. (laughs) I love that. I actually don't have any solid evidence that I should not mention this fellowship that saved my life, but the founder's name is Bill Wilson, and I owe my life to him. So now I feel better giving him some much-deserved credit. That's the thing about listening to everyone else. It gets confusing. So I want you to know that is the only advice I have listened to since making the decision to write this book. It's important to me that I document some truths to you before we say goodbye. I chose to write a book. That alone is an incredibly difficult task to accomplish. I want to thank Lafern Beatty for encouraging me to write this memoir slash business book. I asked this new friend to work out with me on the Courtney Campbell Causeway in Tampa Bay because I know that's where she exercises. I respect how busy she is as a published author, national speaker, and I know in business it's mandatory to meet people where they are. Did you hear me? Meet people where they are. If you want to meet with somebody, well, don't expect them to come to you. I'm taking a sip now. It's been a rough evening. Bear with me. (laughs) That's wonderful cold water. Hopefully I won't be talking at all tomorrow. Okay, so here we go. Back again. So meet them where they are. After she kicked my butt all over the causeway, she was generous enough to share her table of contents outline with me, and that's really where it all began. I made a commitment to myself this year to level up in business since I've already done that in my personal life. I've said goodbye to many friends, and so long for now, to some friends and some family members, in order to push through to where I am actually meant to be. So... Before I go on with that, I do want to say that it's never easy to say goodbye 
to people that you have loved in your life for so long. And sometimes it's really just so long for now. But when you get healthier, as long as you stay consistent working on yourself, you can't help but constantly remind yourself that who you surround yourself with is who you become. So it's not that I don't love these people. It's just that I had to say so long for now. And to some, it really was goodbye. So in order to push through, right, that's what you have to do. I just, I can't afford to be angry today, so I choose not to surround myself with toxic environments or people that might negatively affect my mental health. That's just my reality. It's a commodity I'm just not willing to negotiate with at this stage of my life. It's way too precious. It's been more of a difficult navigation course in the business world to sort out who my people were. There was a short period of time not too long ago that I didn't recognize myself in certain very fancy circles. I have walked away from money many times in business to stay true to my purpose and my mission. By no means am I saying that's easy. It is a personal decision. I am not financially driven. I only went into business to be happy and to help others. I would have stayed at the last practice if I were focused on money. Jeez, I made a ton there. So entrepreneurship is just, it's hard. And if you have to be, like you have to be completely driven and self-motivated, this is not for the weak. I also believe that you have to weed out toxic energy, suckers. You know, you know the ones, the ones that suck the life out of you. And surround yourself with more solid, say, blue fishers to elevate yourself to the next level. I also recommend checking out the book Blue Fishing by Steve Sims. Love it. And I love me some of my blue fisher friends. You know who you are. I caught myself a few years ago missing weekly recovery meetings and I wasn't diligent in helping others. The secret sauce in recovery and in life is to help others without expectation. That has taken me many years to truly embrace. I have unfortunately lost many through the years to the disease of addiction and to depression. So as life would have it, the crane picked me up again and placed me at a recovery meeting ironically, the same one I just came from, and in walks yet another Kelly. And she was sitting right next to me at the meeting. And she celebrates her anniversary at the end of this month, too. We were meant to be. We are like peas and carrots, right, Kelly? So I was hoisted out of some financially motivated business relationships and into the life of this angel. I now have three angels that I'm helping through recovery of addiction and focus back on this greater purpose. Although I knew it would cost me financially again to dedicate time to write this labor of love, I knew in my gut I had to do it. I would ultimately be of service to others and I know that delay is dangerous. The book is not meant for me. It is intended to help one person. If anything comes out of that, it is out of my control. I'm actually quite comfortable with these divine interventions crossing my path now. So whatever is meant to be will be. I wrote these previous 12 chapters in five days at the most beautiful 
collaborative workspace in the world, The Ring. It is the second well-certified co-working space in the country. I have had a very hard time saying that it was the second because the first one is in Boston and you know how us New Yorkers do, okay? So, I mean, this place is incredible. Um, It's also where I hold a private office with Alyssa in my second company, 13th Avenue Media. More about that insanity later. So I used the greenhouse conference space, which I affectionately call the tree room. And I literally feel like I'm sitting in a tree house when I'm there, surrounded by all of nature's blessings and was truly inspired in that space. I've grown to deeply respect nature and I simply adore trees so this space seemed most appropriate to pour my heart, my heart out in. Daniels, the owner of this incredible space, I know um, his wife is also um, an owner. And then there's the beautiful Janelle, who I love, the COO, and Festus. Um, they have it's such a great team. Chris and Lauren, love you guys. Okay, anyway. Um, so Daniels, getting back to Daniels. He replaced my chair one day to a more comfortable one without even telling me. It was almost like he knew I barely slept that week and had relived many traumatic events while I was writing these chapters. That, my friends, is what real wellness and divine intervention is all about. Just simple acts of kindness and listening to the whispers. More about that later. So I committed to five days because I'm really good at setting scheduled goals today I also knew it would be traumatic to relive some of these moments, so best to just rip off the Band-Aid. I'm a very disciplined human being now, one of the many benefits of living a life of sobriety. When I commit to something, I do it. There's absolutely no chance that I will not do what I set out to accomplish. It's just that simple for me now. Of course, that is also very beneficial in business. Clients know they can depend on me because I never give them any reason to believe otherwise. No lip service just a proven track record that I will work my ass off for anyone that trusts me enough to pay for my services. It's a gift that I get to live this life of entrepreneurship and surviving a life of addiction and depression. I take absolutely nothing for granted today, and I'm consistently in awe of all the gifts I have received. I've been actively listening to the whispers. I'm an avid bike rider and practice meditation at designated spots along my bike rides, I love being out in nature, and I appreciate the simple beauty that Earth provides us. There have been vivid times during recent rides that I've heard the whispers catapulting me forward, encouraging me to speak out about my journey through addiction, depression, recovery, and business. Each time I question a struggle about this new journey, I ask for a sign, and a dolphin will appear. God shows me this divine plan in so many personal ways, Sometimes it's just meeting someone else named Kelly. I rarely ever share these encounters with others, but it's now my core belief today that I have a responsibility, not a choice. There have been too many overdoses and suicides in this world to stay quiet. I mean, come on, guys. I just told you about one that I just heard about just a few hours ago. Thank God he's still here with us. Because I'm a miracle in the flesh that could potentially offer hope to others. Manifestation is real. It's real, people. Okay? I have been practicing this method in life and business for years now. 
I know if I believe I can do something, I absolutely can. When I decided, notice I wrote decided, to be on Say Yes to the Dress, it happened. I never for one second doubted that I couldn't make that a reality. When I left Kleinfeld's in Manhattan that day over 12 years ago, I told everyone who listened that the show would call to film the wedding too. It happened. I also used my business negotiation tactics to spend less than 10K on our gorgeous yet simple wedding. The pitch went something like this. I would love nothing more than than to have an opportunity to expose your business on national television. What are you willing to do for me? (laughs) So, Wendy, my bestie from New York, for many years now, had survived that horrible stabbing that almost took her life years ago. Remember, watch the show to learn more. The episode is called Family Ties. She arrives in Tampa Bay on August 17th. She's going to be here on Wednesday. It's Saturday to Florida to celebrate her 11th rebirth year with my family and my 25th sober anniversary. It's been a long road of divine interventions for her too. Now back to business. So I've manifested my way into an enormous amount of very high profile meetings from Tampa Bay to New York City. I'm most proud of saying to the city of Largo that I was going to get Randy Zuckerberg to attend our event and then successfully raise the money to get her here. I wanted to meet with Jeff Finnick, owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and creative genius surrounding the upcoming wellness district being built here in Tampa Bay. And I landed that one too. Then I set my sights out on the CEO of Delos in New York City because of my ambitious and long-standing addiction to the wellness industry, specifically the well-built environment. I honestly don't know how I pulled that one off, but I did And I even talked my way into a spur-of-the-moment podcast interview. (laughs) Just, you know, whipped out my phone and started recording. So, you know, quite honestly, there are simply too many to mention. But all of these chance meetings are documented on my social channels today. So if you have any interest in checking them out, they're there. I give out a tremendous amount of value without expectation. And the universe rewards me every time. By the way, don't be fooled. It also takes a tremendous amount of work and tenacity. I just don't settle in life or in business anymore, ever again. This all brings me to today. So today being the July 13th. Are you you catching a trend here? It was July 13th. Okay, so on that day, um, I wrote at 6 a.m. this morning, I went out for a run while Robin Cooper lay sleeping at Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. I was sought out via social media to speak at a medical conference about hiring a dream team. Simply writing that blows my mind. (laughs) Not only do they pay me to speak, but they comp a beautiful hotel in Disney for two nights. I couldn't get someone to even buy me a drink when I was drinking, and now people pay to hear me speak? Mind balloon. And by the way, I just got payment um, yesterday. Was it yesterday? the day before? Yeah. While I was at my hotel. So it's crazy to get a check for speaking at a medical conference. (sighs) All right. So I put an enormous amount of content out thanks to the free and ingenious advice that Gary Vaynerchuk offers via his social channels. Sidebar, thank you, Whitney Holtzman, for that intro, that beautiful day in 2018. 
I also have two podcasts and I run two small businesses, so I put in the work. I work with doctors too, remember, so there's that. I have practical and real advice for the medical community. And now I also run a media company with that lovely lady mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. I set my intentions years ago that business would evolve into speaking gigs and without even a book, that happened. The plan was not mine and never in a million years did I think life and business would intersect so beautifully for me to be able to share my life journey with you. I was not able to have my own children, so God gave me Cooper. I had suffered two ectopic pregnancies. If you don't know what that means, because my buddy Nick, when he was reading the book, he was like, what is an ectopic pregnancy? Yeah, it's not commonly spoken of, but look it up. You know, Google, G-O-O-G-L-E. Gary Vaynerchuk loves to say that. So do I. So I had these two ectopic pregnancies and knew it was not meant to be on that memorable memorable, sorry, day a few years ago. So I was in the patient room after a sonogram, and I was informed again about another loss. When the doctor left the room, I put my head down and sobbed. As I slowly lifted up my eyes, I focused directly on a computer and on the screen, scrolling across, was the name Cooper. I was at, it was like right at that moment, I knew again that a higher force was in charge. The crane's plan was already in motion when it gifted me with a husband that had a son from a previous relationship, I would now be able to share in the joy of raising a child for the last 12 years. I am so incredibly blessed. I sure do love that 15-year-old boy who is right now sitting in the living room watching some type of movie with my husband and my dog. So, thank you, really, to all the women who showed me how to hold my chin up in the air after I crawled back into life. I'm still looking up to you. To my favorite LGBTQ community, your light is shining so bright and I will be an ally for life. Cheers to all the amazing businesswomen and female athletes blazing through 2019 to ensure we have equal rights and equal pay. 2020. You see that manifesting thing happening there? I learned everything about life and business from watching my hardworking immigrant parents. I realize that I'm one of the lucky ones, and I sympathize with anyone reading this now that did not have the same good fortune. I implore you not to give up. You are a gift from up above, and all you need to do is the actual hardest thing in the world, Surrender and ask for help. Please, you are not alone. I owe everything, I really do, I owe everything good in my life today to my parents. I want to do the noble thing here too and also list God, my husband, recovery, my sponsor, Cynthia, my brothers, my extended family, my nephew and my niece, my former bosses, my clients and my friends. But the glory at the end of the day, really goes to them. 
You see how I did that? I listed them anyway. Seriously, though, they endured what no parent should ever have to suffer through in a lifetime and still came out the best of friends and madly in love. The amount of strength I have gained from both of them is insurmountable. They have loved me unconditionally through the good and the bad. I've never been judged, and they absolutely loved me back to health when I was a young adult. I love you both. Happy birthday, Mom. You'll be reading this. I mean, listening to it on your birthday as soon as you wake up. I love you. You're my hero. I adore you. August 11th, 2019. Business Life Parallel. You will remove toxic people from your personal life the healthier you become. This will ultimately happen for you too in business. The lesson is sometimes the hardest for me to learn, so I will share it with you as yet another reminder. When people show you who they are, believe them the first time. My favorite, Maya Angelou, who I would have never known about without Oprah Winfrey. All right, business tip, be kind, help others, hire slow, and fire fast. So you know how in a movie the credits roll and then some outtakes come on while people are leaving the theater? Yeah, we, this is how I'm feeling about writing this last part. I never had a plan for this book. I actually would have preferred to just put it on Audible and never print a copy, but learn that's not really a thing (laughs) for an unknown such as myself. Well, into my life walks my friend Nick Giannini. What did, you know what? Who's really messed me up with that last name? Surrey. So let's just say Nick, okay? It's uh, 11.43. It's time. Who actually did the research of how to self-publish and print a small amount of books for anyone that wants it. We sat together recently at Starbucks and I signed up for some cheap way to do this and the rest is history. I actually made the decision after writing the book that I'm putting this on the Dr. Whisperer podcast on 8-11-19 for anyone that wants to listen. As mentioned before, this is for you not me. Okay, so I'm reading that to you right now. And that's exactly what has happened. So I did everything I said I was going to do. It's before midnight on my 25th sober anniversary at mom's birthday. And it's done now. So peace out.